part that I agree with the uh, anti-vitamin crowd where they're saying that, look, uh, if you have a high calcitriol, it's not a good sign, right? Uh, it's a sign that something's off. That part I certainly agree with. Um, but then I think where, we, where at least I diverge is the, the anti-vitamin D crowd is saying um, uh, the low 25-hydroxy vitamin D, which is the precursor to calcitriol, is just a symptom of that disease. It's not an actual, it's not an actual cause. It doesn't contribute to the pathology. Um, yet I've seen multiple studies and direct experience with people, including myself, where supplementing uh, vitamin D3, which is colicalciferol, the precursor to 25-hydroxy, um, actually lowered my calcitriol back to normal. Welcome to the Win at Life podcast, a place where we share everything you need to know about restoring your metabolism so you can break free from restrictive diets and build a body and life you love. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the great vitamin D uh, debate. We've got our amazing, well, I say, should say mine and Craig. It is, it's not, it's not just me. Um, we're really grateful, actually, to have made so many amazing friends since starting this journey. I think, firstly, we befriended Danny way back when we had the gym, and then we got to know Kate, then Danny, oh, sorry, then Georgie, and then now, more recently, we've got to know Matt. And I just think you guys... I just, we both really like all, all of you and you're very open and you're also um, giving with your knowledge, I think, and your time and you really just genuinely want to help people, I think, live better lives and you're also knowledgeable, so much more knowledgeable than us and every time we speak to you, we learn a lot, but we're really grateful for all of your friendships um, and I'm grateful that you could take the time to get on today and talk about this because I think, I mean, I'm confused. And I know that so many other people are confused as well. So just before we begin, no spitting, no headbutting, clean fighting, just kidding. I'm only kidding. <laughs> this will be a really amazing um, and interesting discussion. So Kate's actually going to um, lead it and start with the questions because I think she's sort of re done a fair bit of research on, on both sides. Yeah, so I kind of thought I would talk about maybe, eat, you know, because I know we have Matt and Georgie and Danny here. Everyone has a little bit of different perspective, possibly. It's just kind of give a little bit of understanding of what we're talking about here is, you know, essentially, should you supplement with vitamin D or not? I think that's the, the baseline question. So trying to get a fundamental understanding of how vitamin D works, I think is a good starting point. So I, I'm going to kind of direct that to Georgie, Danny, to kind of give their perspective from what, from a, a vitamin D, why you should supplement. Uh, Georgie, do you want to take that one or, or me? Uh, sure. Um, I think that, uh, well, uh, the part, the part that I agree with the uh, anti-vitamin D crowd where they're saying that, look, uh, if you have a high calcitriol, it's not a good sign, right? Uh, it's a sign that something's off. That part I certainly agree with. Um, but then I think where, we, where at least I diverge is the, the anti-vitamin D crowd is saying um, uh, the low 25-hydroxy vitamin D, which is the precursor to calcitriol, is just a symptom of that disease. It's not an actual, it's not an actual cause. It doesn't contribute to the pathology. Um, yet I've seen multiple studies and direct experience with people, including myself, where supplementing uh, vitamin D3, which is colicalciferol, the precursor to 25-hydroxy, um, actually lowered my calcitriol back to normal. Mine wasn't that much high. It wasn't that much higher than the upper range. Um, it was maybe 10 points higher, um, but it also coincided with uh, my serum calcium being about 0.1 decimal um, um, 
units over the, the upper limit. Um, and as soon as I started supplementing the, the colicalciferol, both my calcitriol and the serum calcium dropped back to normal and actually dropped back to the middle of the range. Um, and to the point where my doctor was saying, like, so what are you taking? You know, why is your calcitriol dropping? And then I showed him the uh, vitamin D3 and he checked my 25-hydroxy and that one has actually, had actually jumped. It was in the, I was in the insufficiency range before that. So it wasn't just a deficiency. They actually have two levels defined. If you're, I think if you're below 30, but above 20, it's classified as deficiency, at least in the American range. And then below 20, it's severe deficiency or now they call it insufficiency. So in my case, supplementing vitamin D3, uh, remediated uh, those signs slash symptoms that the anti-vitamin D crowd says, no, this is a sign that something else is going on. It needs to be looked at. So I actually did talk to my doctor. I said, look, do you think it could be like a parathyroid tumor? Like, should we do an ultrasound? Should we look at something else? He said, no, I don't think so. And I said, why? He said, well, I don't think it, it's related to that because your PTH is not, if you have a parathyroid uh, uh, gland hook tumor, uh, it, the PTH is usually above range. And yours isn't. It is. It's in the top top twenty five percent of normal range. It's not enough for me to justify an ultrasound. They can check my prolactin, which also came back high. So this is also something that the pro vitamin D crowd, or maybe I should have called it pro vitamin D, the crowd that says that supplementing with colicalciferol is not likely to exacerbate your symptoms defined by high PTH or high normal PTH, high calcitriol, high prolactin, and high serum calcium. It's likely to normalize it. Um, I think, um, and I've seen actually studies, I haven't experimented this for myself because I'm not that case, where even people overproducing the PTHRP and those are people with cancer, even they benefit from supplementing with colicalciferol, even though in their case, they're also suffering from, they call it cancer-related hyper, hypercalcemia, a lot higher than mine. I was 10.2 and the range was 10.1, the maximum uh, normal range. People with cancer-related hypercalcemia go into the 12 or even 13 level range, and they're overproducing PTH, RP, their cancer cells are producing that. And even those people have been shown to benefit from supplementing colicalciferol. Will it work in everybody? I don't know, because there are there may be cases where the, the calcitriol may be driven, the production of calcitriol may be driven by something else. Um, there are a few recent studies that show that there may be actually tumors that can, that are, that are capable of producing calcitriol themselves. Should that be the case? And then depending on whether these tumors express the enzymes that are involved in the negative feedback mechanism of synthesizing calcitriol, maybe those people, it won't help. But I don't know how, what percentage of the general population those, those uh, cancer cases are. Uh, and it's not even confirmed in those people whether supplementing D3 would help or harm. There's just no information yet. So I'm, I'm definitely not like, definitely gung ho go to the 20,000 uh, units daily dosage strain. Uh, but every single time I supplemented within the three to 5,000 units daily range, uh, whatever symptoms I happen to have, whether those be uh, like a viral infection, whether it's the flu or COVID-19, God forbid, right? Um, they dissipated within days. Of course, it's all anecdotal. But the objective evidence in my case was that um, mild elevation of calcitriol, mild hypercalcemia, and PTA, uh, uh, mild, well, I shouldn't, say, I shouldn't call it mild hyperprolactinemia because the upper range of prolactin was 20 and mine was 50, 50. Not enough to be, uh, I was sent for an MRI. They didn't find anything. They didn't find a prolactinoma, but you know, it was in that range where it all converges with those symptoms of high prolactin, high normal PTH, 
um, you know, high cholesterol, high serum calcium, and in my case, three to 5,000 units of vitamin D3 corrected that within a week. Okay. That is, that was very good, but I, I want to kind of go back a second so that everyone kind of has a definition of all the terminology you're using, because when we say vitamin D, the, that can refer to a plethora of different things from, so let's kind of just define, right? So there is essentially supplemental vitamin D, right. which is chlorocalcicerol, and then there is stored vitamin D, which is the one that we're kind of in question with here about essentially its point in all of this. And that's one that essentially goes up when you take supplemental D. And then there is your active vitamin D, which is essentially the one that both camps can agree upon that elevated levels are not good for you. Right. And so at this point in time, I think everyone can agree on that. When you have elevated active, active D, that's a sign of sickness, disease, or whatever that is not good. And you want to get that down. The question no, no, no. Go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. I don't want to make this confusing, but what is it morally saying that the active is the one to focus on? Like, I don't want to make this overly complex. Matt, you've talked to Morley much more or you've listened to him. I, in the podcast with um, uh, Morley and the other person, like he, he said it multiple times that he thought that was the focus. And I, again, I don't think, I'm not trying to say his position is your position, but it is very confusing to try to figure out what, the, what they're saying, I feel like. Yeah, it's, it's definitely the way they say it. It could be articulated a little more fluid, uh, fluidly. Um, <laughs> but it's my understanding that in Germany... Um, there are tests that they look at the ratio and I just learned this recently. So I'll just introduce by saying that I'm not a vitamin D expert. I'm just like, you know, just studying and listening to anecdotes as Georgie shared his, which I think are very useful. And I've heard the polar opposite ones as well from people that got really sick when their naturopath had them on D3. And this is like 5,000 I use, like not that high, but it's my understanding that it's the ratio of 25 D to 125 D that's important. And so it's the active divided by the storage. And I guess they're doing this in Germany right now. Um, and under two is good. Um, 1.6 is kind of like a target. And that just means you don't have a lot of inflammation. Uh, so that's my understanding there is, is kind of, you're yeah, kind of looking think, at the relationship. Yeah, I think a lot of them is, are getting that. And if people want to look up is Trevor, Trevor Marshall's work. And I've heard them mm -hmm. reference Trevor Marshall before, who is, I, I think he's like an engineer from, I want to say he might be from Australia but he's done a lot of work in the vitamin D world and, uh, and talks a lot about this in the reference ranges of active D to, to uh, 25D, which is stored D. So I, I, I kind of feel like maybe for the listener, maybe it will be easiest for us to reference the, the Ds like stored, uh, supplemental and active. And I, I think that might be helpful um, just because there's like three or four names for every, every one of these Ds and it can get a little bit confusing. Um, <clears throat> So yeah, I, I think Danny that I think from my understanding is they are focusing on active D, but what they're saying is active D is it's, it's a immune response. And when it's elevated, there is an immune response occurring and it's not good. And that essentially the, the D supplement acts as an immune suppressive. Is that what you get, Matt? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, it's so complex, which is kind of fun to to go down this rabbit hole. So happy we're having this conversation because there's so many aspects to it. And uh, when someone tells me that they're low in 25D, which is the storage form, which is the usual test, I often ask, well, which of the 14 25Ds did you look at? 
because there's at least 14, possibly more. And if we want to make it more complex, there's more than just D3 storage D and active D. There's like over 25. I mean, there's 24, 25 D. There's so many pathways. It doesn't just end at active D. It could keep going. Um, and that's, that's what I'm looking to now. And it's, I mean, it makes it kind of complicated. And I, I don't know if it's useful to only look at three without looking at the entire picture because you're just focusing in on one piece. You, you, I, th I feel like you could make a similar argument about thyroid saying don't take thyroid because there are so many intermediary hormones in between. And so like the complexity doesn't necessarily give you an answer of whether you should or should not do something. And so they, I feel like they brought that. I'm just referencing the podcast that you did with um, Morley, but um, I don't know. I could give my perspective a little bit. Uh, so like Georgie, I'd probably start with anecdotes. <laughs> and so uh, vitamin D, I've been using it probably since like 2008, uh, mitigated racing mind before bed, waking up in the middle of the night, hyper somnolent. So like being unable to get out of bed in the morning, Mild depression, low motivation, general anxiety, inflammatory bowel, improved oral health, uh, water retention. And so for me, this conversation is kind of like saying that thyroid is toxic or aspirin is toxic. It rings so untrue to me, given my just general experience in the, in the health world and in trying to solve my bizarre, weird body, you know. But the thing that I would agree uh, with the anti-vitamin D uh, point of view is I'm, I think any supplement can be a powerful allergen. And so the fact that somebody took vitamin D and they had some wild, bad reaction to it, that is not outside the realm of possibility to me at all. You know, like somebody sent me a vitamin D uh, a few days ago with like guar gum in it. You know, like there are so many disgusting additives and supplements and even a pure supplement like the, I use the Carlson brand and that only contains MCT oil, but or and vitamin E, and it will upset my stomach every single time I use it. So I only put it on my skin. So again, this is very confusing. I would never think that a supplement couldn't cause a powerful irritation, but at the same time, because I talk to so many people with elevated parathyroid hormone, so many people with prola uh, elevated prolactin, so many people with elevated aldosterone, I think uh, as a basic anti-inflammatory, the colocalciferol the or the 25D, and that level coming back low so often, it it's, seems like a no-brainer to recommend the colocalciferol to get that level up. Uh, can yeah, I throw I something in a, there? Yeah, for, for yeah, sure. Uh, so the calcitriol, uh, to me, the I guess the sign that whether you need to supplement vitamin D or not is that if your calcitriol is high, but your parathyroid hormone is not suppressed, and, that is- And just so you're, just real quick, you're, you're referring active thyroid. Yes, active. active. Yes, so, so supplementary vitamin D is usually D3, known as colocalciferol, or D2, uh, uh, calcifidiol, which is what doctors prescribe usually at the dosage of like 50,000 units once weekly. Um, they, for some reason, they don't prescribe D3. They like the D2. But both have the same meta metabolic pathways. And basically, ultimately, uh, they go through the passage of 25-hydroxy D3, D3, which is the storage version, and then eventually gets activated in the kidneys to calcitriol, which is 125 dihydroxy uh, D3. 
Um, so uh, if you talk to an endocrinologist, they actually they themselves have the this one of the one of the criteria for whether they should be looking at a vitamin D deficiency as something to be remediated or not touched at all, is whether the negative feedback mechanism that's supposed to exist between the end product and the parathyroid hormone is there. And if your if your calcitriol is uh, is high uh, and your parathyroid hormone is not at the very least in the bottom 25% of the normal range, this to the end of most endocrinologists means that at the very least, supplementing vitamin D3 is not going to be a problem because you need to bring that PTH down to reestablish the negative feedback mechanism. And if you have a, let's call it resistance, because that's what doctors like to use the term. If you have a resistance to that, to, to those receptors that the calcitriol is supposed to activate to trigger the negative feedback mechanism, endocrinologists think that it, in such a case, it's okay to supplement more. And sometimes they'll even prescribe even more calcitriol as an injection just to bring your PTH down. Um, it's not very common, but it's an established protocol. So maybe that will be one way to distinguish whether, whether you're in danger of, in other words, if your calcitriol is high uh, and your PTH is suppressed, then there's probably not much good in supplementing any vitamin D, especially calcitriol if the doctor wants to give it, but even the D3 and D2, even though they're precursors, because you're already suppressed, like the mechanism is working as expected and you don't want to push PTH even lower. Um, as far as the active vitamin D, I think there's a little bit of a misnomer here because multiple studies and even I just recently checked an endocrinology book. It says that all of them have activity at the vitamin D receptor, except the only difference being that calcitriol is about 10 to 100 times more potent as an agonist than D2, D3, or um, the 25-hydroxy, which is the storage form. But make no mistake, every single one of them is an agonist, in other words, an activator of VDR. There's, I don't think there's much doubt about this. I mean, at least, at least in the official literature. Uh, the reason they don't prescribe, they don't go directly with a D3 is because, uh, you know, doctors usually prescribe PT, uh, sorry, calcitriol in, in severe cases like uh, people with kidney disease that are losing a ton of cal calcium, uh, and have high phosphate, right? So for, uh, for, with those patients, doctors usually don't want to take chances and they prescribe calcitriol because they think the way it regulates the whole mechanism is through the VDR. So they like to administer the most potent VDR agonist available. But as far as activity, I think based on the structure, and that's my explanation, but, it, but the statement is out there. I can send at least 20 different studies that show every single one of these intermediates, precursors, whether at the very top D3 or somewhere in the middle, every single one of them is capable of binding and activating the VDR. It's just to a different different degree, different different ability. So if one microgram of calcitriol, you, you, get, it, you get it to be 100% active at the VDR as an activator, you will probably need a dosage about 100 times higher uh, in micrograms of D3 in order to get the same response. Okay. And I think you just made a really important point there because I think that's a definite difference is the people that do not support uh, supplementation of vitamin D definitely believe the only active form is active uh, calcitriol. So it, it, you're basically making a distinction that they all have activity. And I've read reports on that as well. And I think that's a definite distinguishing. And when you see that they all have activity, then how they're going to work is a different perspective. And I don't know if you want to address that, Matt. Yeah, I was just wondering, Georgie, if you've looked into like the VDREs, um, like the response elements v, uh, called VDREs, because 
from what I've seen, it's the active form, which we've been calling uh, calcitriol. I guess maybe we'll put in the notes the names and all the names. From in, your, in your show, you have <laughs> but, such a good way of doing it. 25D and 125D. I feel like that yeah, would yeah, simplify things. Right. Yeah, that's very how well. I like yeah. to talk about it. Um, well, I've looked at the response <laughs> elements, but my I don't know. Uh, I haven't read much about them, but my uh, the, the evidence that I've seen that convinced me that they're, they're all active, in addition to what the study says, that there are multiple human studies that show that you can drop PTH by administering any precursor without making any changes in considerable levels. Now, of course, that doesn't, because these measurements in blood were done like one at a time, right? There is, of course, the possibility that they missed the immediate spike of considerable that maybe occurred, right? But if you're dealing with like 100, 200, 300 people, and you, they all experienced a drop, a significant statistically significant drop in PTH without a statistically significant change in calcitriol. To me, that adds evidence towards the argument that that the precursors, the inactive ones, the storage forms or the precursors, they themselves also have an activity on the calcium homeostasis. Whether that's through VDR, that remains to be seen. Maybe maybe there's another mechanism we still don't know about. Yeah, and so I again I go back to the point the because I know that's one of the arguments is that they don't believe that there isn't any activity in anything other than the 125D, and so that changes things because the activity is based on its elevation, and when it's elevated, we all know that bad things happen on that level. So right. when you go back and you actually make an a understanding that the stored uh, or the extra supplemental has an effect on the stored D, and it has a basic active response then you kind of change your perspective on is it being effective or not? It doesn't matter to use it. Because I think the argument is that, that why would I take a inactive hormone or per se or a vitamin if it doesn't have any activity, it's not having an effect on that active number, uh, active D or 125, which in fact, it does have an effect on it. And taking the supplemental D does actually lower the 125D along with the parathyroid hormone. I think the analogy that I can give here is with pregnenolone because it's also considered officially in medicine still to this day an inactive precursor. Despite the multiple studies showing that actually the pregnenolone molecule being a steroid and of a specific structure is actually capable of binding all of the steroid receptors. Um, there, there, there haven't been many studies for whatever reason, I guess medicine just doesn't like to work with pregnenolone, but the few studies that looked at pregnenolone uh, demonstrated that it's capable of activating the androgen receptor at much, much, much higher concentration than let's say testosterone. It's capable of blocking estrogen receptor alpha and activating estrogen receptor beta, but again, at humongously much higher concentrations than what estradiol would normally do, right? It's also capable, it's, it's fully active as a progestogen. It can maintain pregnancy in um, pregnant animals, even in animals where the three beta hydroxysteroid hydrogenase enzyme is being blocked, which means pregnenolone was not capable of being converted to, to progesterone. So it must have, you know, worked through the progesterone receptor if that theory is even valid. Maybe, maybe the whole progestogenic activity maintaining pregnancy doesn't depend on the progesterone receptor. Maybe it's another mechanism um, in place, like, you know, improving, improving uh, systemic metabolism. It's also capable of binding and antagonizing the glucocorticoid receptor, um, and also it's uh, now known to be the most potent endogenous antagonist of the aldosterone receptor. So there you go. Officially, if you go to read the books on pregnenolone, to this day, they will say that, that it's an inactive precursor with some possibly, uh, with some, with some possible 
uh, conjectured effects is a neurosteroid because of its effects on the GABA system. But as far as acting as one of those other endpoint steroids, the official version as of right now is that pregnenolone has no effect on them. And that's, that's the status quo, that, that, that's the, the, uh, the consensus, if we, if we can call it that way. Despite the multiple studies, if you look at them, there may be about 20 examining specific effects of pregnenolone on each one of these receptors, and they found it active on every single one of them. So not saying it's the same thing, but vitamin D is a steroid, and it is the vitamin D3 sits at the very top of the chain together with vitamin D2 as a precursor. Um, and if Hans Seles' work is any indication, he did extensive work with pregnenolone and found that it can substitute for any steroid deficiency if you give it in large enough amounts. It also had a balancing effect. Uh, it could also correct for an excess. In other words, if you have a hyperestrogenic hyper condition, pregnenolone would rein it in. Uh, if you had like a hyperandrogenic condition, pregnenolone would rein it in. In fact, they were treating uh, hirsutism, uh, uh, in women that were growing like beards and like mustaches because of adrenal tumors. And that actually it, uh, brings me up to the other point, which, which many of the um, opponents of vitamin D would uh, bring up. They will say, don't supplement with a precursor because it's going to raise too much your levels of calcitriol. And yet when we look at the studies with other precursors, it's actually the opposite that happens. And there are several studies that I found, and I emailed to that person, Steve, who we had exchanged, Danny knows about him. I should have emailed it to you guys before the show. We actually found several human studies which demonstrated that supplementing D3 increases the excretion and the degradation of calcitriol, which is what the active one, right? The calcitriol. Yeah. And yeah. also in high enough doses starts to inhibit the enzyme 125-hydroxylase, I think is the one that's that's expressing the kidneys, that actually is the final step for converting the storage one into the active one. But yeah. the dosage were the dosages were high. It were one million units per cow. The study was in cows. But it's still, it is direct evidence that if you if you use an inactive precursor, it's it, it's not inactive. It, it does regulate the system. Whether in your case it will raise the calcitriol or lower it, it's probably an individual response, depending on many other things, such as like if you only supplement cholecalciferol, but you're in a state of cal dietary calcium deficiency, my guess is that it will not be a very beneficial thing to just load up on vitamin D because calcium is, is probably the fundamental element that controls parathyroid hormone. The vitamin D, aside from being a steroid and having other activities, I think vitamin D's role is actually bigger in the immune system than it is in calcium homeostasis, aside from increasing its absorption, is the presence of calcium in the diet that I think regulates both calcitriol, parathyroid hormone, and phosphorus. That's a lot. Everyone got that? <laughs> <laughs> Matt, do you, Matt, you want to comment on essentially the inactive uh, components of, uh, or any of that? Yeah, that was awesome, Georgie. Yeah. Um, I always enjoy listening to you. <laughs> so I think they're all important. That's kind of my current thing. So it's not like active 125 is better or more important than 25D. I just think it's important to look at them together when you're assessing a situ situation. And um, it's my understanding that vitamin D isn't the main thing that manages PTH. Um, it's, there's like a bunch of things involved, like mineral homeostasis and, you know, magnesium status and stuff. Um, I guess what makes me skeptical about supplementing vitamin D and not getting it from like a vitamin D lamp or the sunlight, like getting, I, I opt to get it from the sun. And I think light is the best source and 
there's multiple other things happening with the light, like beta endorphin creation and all sorts of stuff. Vitamin D is probably a small piece that you get from light therapy, but um, just that they changed the goal, that fact, like in 2010, they actually changed the goal and raised the ideal lab values because I think we've all looked into iron and ferritin and how that's been kind of changed. Yeah. I think they changed that in the seventies in Spain and um, we're all familiar with omega threes and all the money behind those, whatever, 20,000 plus studies that I used to buy into. So I guess that's where I'm coming from with being, you know, quote anti, which at this moment I am, I don't know. A topical is probably a different story, but definitely oral. Um, I guess you could say I'm anti because of how they actually rate. It's like raising the speed limit on the freeway. Like, why did they do that? Was it, was it new information or was it money? And when I look at the article of uh, Michael Hollick, you guys have probably seen the, the man who sold America on vitamin D, you know, Michael Hollick, um, he and he had connections with like the testing uh, laboratories and stuff and the supplement industry. That's where I just question. I kind of lump it in with the omega-3 business. I'm, I'm saying like, let's probably look at, you know, follow the money a little bit to see why this shifted. You know, why did they raise from 21 you know, or 12 to 21. And then now they just keep raising it. It just, it, ma it makes me raise an eyebrow. It could be the population. I mean, the Merck manual, and I think Merck is the one who is responsible, at least in the States, for coming up with the ranges. They just do them on an epidemiological basis. They just look at the population. If it changes, then they change the normal. doesn't have anything to do with, it, it, to my knowledge, for most of the steroids. It's not based on any underlying theory of how much, let's say, testosterone a male should be producing. It's not. They're just saying, oh, 40 years old, the upper limit is 850. 10 years later, right, without any consideration of your health, what your, what's your status, what's your occupation, what's your diet, no, the norm, upper, upper normal range is now 600, right? So, you, you know, and then by, I think by the time you're 70, they're defining the normal range in a situation, in a, in a state that will be in a severe hypogonadism. So hence why all the older grandpas, when they're getting their testosterone injections, they're feeling, you know, they're starting chasing nurses, like I said in, you know, posted in a recent blog post of my 93-year-old grandpa starts getting to fist fights with other grandpas over the attention of the nurses after getting an injection with dihydrotestosterone. So clearly those ranges are not defined based on any kind of an objective expectation of health. It's just observation. And I guess the, the assumption is that it is okay to decline with time. And that's why we're getting these changes. And of course, if you don't have any theory driving the ranges, the only thing you can do is sample the population and that's going to be a new normal. So we can get yep. progressively sicker without anybody realizing it. And we continue to chase fake goals. Yeah, there's a Ginn paper from 2012 and it says optimal vitamin D status defined by uh, estimated maximum parathyroid hormone suppression does not occur until at least 25 D levels uh, greater than 40 nanograms per milliliter. And so I, I thought, again, that's not by Holic. And then I have a few, again, I should afford these to everybody. But um, again, I, I would hope that anybody listening to this, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here, would not trust like our opinions on the subject, but they could go get their vitamin D level tested. They could go get their parathyroid hormone tested. They could get their prolactin tested. They could get their aldosterone. And in my estimation, if their vitamin D was low and they supplemented in a safe way, their parathyroid hormone which correct me if I'm wrong, nobody here thinks it's good to have high parathyroid hormone or even mid-level parathyroid hormone. And, and same with prolactin. These hormones are adaptive and inflammatory. And 
Matt, you being so familiar with fibrosis, aldosterone is a primary driver of fibrosis. And, and uh, again, a parathyroid hormone and aldosterone have a bi-directional relationship. And so again, that would be the ultimate outcome is to not trust anybody here and to actually obtain empirical information uh, from the listener's point of view and to, to test these theories with, with themselves, I think. Yeah, if you talk to an endocrinologist and ask about how can I figure out if I need to supplement vitamin D3 and explain, you know, and, uh, first of all, most doctors don't test calcitriol. You have to ask for it. Um, and, and I found, found out the hard way that one of my doctors didn't even know <laughs> that this thing existed. <laughs> to, to him, it was 25-hydroxy, and that's about it. And it, only when I requested a test, and he argued for like 15 minutes, checked in his computer, and then said, oh, LabCorp has it. Okay, let's let's get it. And I'm like, I, maybe I shouldn't be talking to you because <laughs> <laughs> you just saw something on the list, and so it's there, so let's check it anyways, without knowing what it's all about. Anyways, uh, you got to check calcitriol, the 25-hydroxy, right? Um, calcium, phosphorus, parathyroid hormone, aldosterone, and I would say cholesterol as well, because... Uh, since since uh, vitamin D is synthesized from cholesterol, you kind of want to get the whole picture of of are you are you metabolizing enough? Are you not right? Um, ideally, you would if you have high cholesterol and low storage form of vitamin D, which is a 25-hydroxy, and yet elevated calcitriol, or at least in the upper 25th percentile, and PTH is not suppressed conversely to the bottom 25th percentile, you're probably a candidate for supplementation, or at the very least, it shouldn't hurt. Because this is clear a situation where your active vitamin D levels are high, yet your PTH is not suppressed, which means the body thinks you need more, and you need more both in terms of calcium and the active uh, vitamin D3. Yeah, so I think that that comes back, and we'll talk about this is, is to another point, that it's not just all about the vitamin D, that I do think there's other cofactors that have to be taken into consideration that people don't address, and just supplementing D, especially in the, in the world of COVID, that everyone's like, oh, I'm going to protect myself now because uh, it's going to protect me if I take D, is a, a little... Um, irresponsible on some level without trying to understand the whole system. So can, maybe you can talk about what else and, or other minerals or nutrients we need to take into consideration if you do supplement D or, you know, if, if D is part of your program. Um, several studies already showed that uh, the males uh, who tend to die from COVID are almost all um, functionally hypogonadic. And Danny and I discussed a recent study that was kind of like a shock to most people because it showed that testosterone actually had a strongly protective effect from dying of influenza. Um, and if you talk to even an endocrinologist, they'll tell you about the androgen hypothesis. You know, boys have this trade-off. The higher the testosterone, the more girls they get, but the quicker they die because it suppresses their immune system. None of this turned out to be true. There's, there's plenty of evidence that shows that, um, yes, very high levels of testosterone may hurt you, but only because they're converting into estrogen. Non-aromatizable androgens like DHT were actually beneficial, um, and so is progesterone and other steroids that protect from the, from the effects of estrogen. In females, it was the same thing, uh, but uh, the, the death rate was related to the levels of prolactin, which is a, a very good biomarker of estrogen. So um, also TSH was now has now been shown to be correlated with uh, adverse effects from or exacerbations of COVID-19, which of course the worst one is dying from it, right? Um, and then of course the high blood pressure. This, uh, if that's the case, uh, you probably have uh, over, uh, chronically overactivated the uh, ring angiotensin system, 
Um, the ACE enzyme is overactive, so you can probably benefit from progesterone recently was found to be a great inhibitor of the ACE, ACE enzyme and an enhancer of the ACE2 enzyme, which is the protective uh, version of it. Um, I haven't seen studies on any other steroids uh, on that system, but progesterone was clearly beneficial. And the human studies that were just recently started giving males progesterone and estrogen, the estrogen arms of those trials have already been suspended. I hope nobody died, because, but it's already pretty clear that estrogen does not help males. Um, let's see if they're going to try it on females. Uh, maybe, maybe not. Um, so checking the pituitary hormones, if any of them is high, whether it's related to the gonadal axis like LH and FSH, the thyroid uh, uh, axis like TSH or, or something like prolactin or even growth hormone. Um, if any of these are elevated, it's likely that you're in a, um, you know, a metabolically deficient state. Um, and that, that basically the energetic deficiency has already been shown that the Warburg metabolism, which results from an energetic deficiency is the primary driver of both the morbidity and mortality of COVID-19. So it ultimately still comes back to energetic reserves. Um, and I suspect the, what vitamin D does, which is probably is going to go contrary to what the anti-vitamin D crowd supports. My, my experience is that it actually acts as an anti-glucocorticoid, and there are several studies on that. So it's not an immune suppressor. In my experience, it is an immune activator, or at the very least, removes the breaks of the immune system that excessive cortisol does. Um, so uh, again, it's a steroid. And it's capable of binding with all of the receptors already demonstrated. It's, now, it's known to be an agonist of the thyroid receptor. It's known to be an antagonist of both the estrogen and the cortisol receptors. And there's still debate of what exactly it does at the androgen receptor. But I suspect it's at least a co-activator because uh, studies with prostate cancer demonstrated that um, when DHT and vitamin D were administered separately, both of them had beneficial effect, but it was relatively minor. Combined... They had synergist effect, effect and basically uh, converted the prostate cancer cells back to normal. So at the very least, it's not an antagonist of the androgen receptor. Um, so what can people do that uh, people with COVID? Above all, keep lipolysis low, keep fatty acid oxidation, uh, uh, at least excessive one, under control, um, and stimulate gluco glucose metabolism as much as possible and keep the Warburg effect in check. Uh, three studies came all came out in 2020, showed Warburg effect, present in every uh, clinical condition, including um, COVID-19. 40% of the people who died from COVID-19 after getting admitted to the hospital had lactic acidemia, lactic acidosis, before even getting admitted to the hospital. They arrived already in a type B lactic acidosis, which has a 30% lethality rate. So may not even be the virus. For those people, it's next to impossible to say if the virus killed them or the lactic acidosis, because just like the diabetic, diabetic ketoacidosis, it has, has a very high mortality rate, actually higher than the ketoacidosis. I think ketoacidosis is like seven to 10%, even with treatment, but the lactic acidosis is high. It's like double digits, 20 to 30%, if not even more. Um, so Warburg, avoiding the Warburg metabolism, which results from stress, over, over oxidation of fat, um, excessive cortisol, excessive estrogen, right? Avoiding sunlight by all means. At this point, um, the study, a study came out that said avoiding uh, sun is as bad as smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. I think that should be a good enough reason to uh, to go out and, and you know enjoy the sun um, or, or use the lamp, which is what Matt, I guess, prefers. Um, so yeah, overall seems to be pretty straightforward, but we have to work at the top, which is improving the energetic reserves of the cell. Uh, as supplements, Usual suspects, niacinamide and aspirin are probably the 
single, the simplest good combo um, that, that should address all of these factors that are contributing to the COVID morbidity and mortality because it should suppress successful it should suppress excessive lipolysis. Obviously, both are anti-inflammatories. People know about aspirin, but mo most people don't know that niacinum is just as potent at about the same dosages as an uh, as an anti-inflammatory. It actually blocks the effects of endotoxin, which many people have problem with excessive endotoxemia. Um, and both of them have anti-estrogenic effects. Um, both of them increase the functioning of the glycolysis cycle, but also of the Krebs cycle and the electron transport chain. And niacinamide is known to lower the levels of lactic acid simply by, by improving uh, the metabolism of glucose, which usually gets stuck at the glycolysis cycle. And that's what leads to the overaccumulation of lactic acid. Methylene blue, uh, recent studies actually with my group, I can send you the links, the group in Bulgaria that I work with already published saying that methylene blue um, should be a, a very promising candidate uh, and even though they focused on its role in, uh, in generating reactive oxygen species, that's what, that's what the medical uh, community wants to see. My suspicion is the reason it helped is that it's actually can, is capable of directly reoxidizing lactic acid back into pyruvate. And just the lowering of lactic acid has a profound anti-hypoxic effect on all of these patients. No need to put them on ventilator. You know, give them a carbogen mix, which is the carbon dioxide with, with oxygen, or give them methylene blue drastic block drop in lactic acid and that should prevent at least 30 percent of those cases that will die simply from the lactic acidosis i feel like we should let matt give us some more uh what are, <laughs> what are the arguments we're not we're not covering matt well i think i think uh, one thing i want to talk to matt about is and then this one argument about the uh the anti-d is essentially obviously all the cofactors uh that were involved whether it's magnesium or vitamin a and maybe give us, because some of the thoughts I think are like, hey, we don't actually need to give D. We can use some other cofactors that cannot maybe increase it or make a contributing factor like magnesium that could actually support um, these reducing the active D and, and, and get a better result with actually not going in with the actual supplemental stored D. Mm. Yeah. Um, and just backing up for a second, I forget if it was Danny or Georgie or both of them that said that taking supplemental D3 lowers PTH and active D. I could actually bring them both down. Everything I've seen, I, maybe there's, I'm sure there is conflicting research showing the polar opposite, that it increases parathyroid hormone and increases active D because those are the studies that I've seen. A lot of them were pre 2010. Um, so I, I just wanted to say that because <laughs> that's kind of, I've seen the opposite with that, but yeah, the cofactors, um, as you mentioned, vitamin A, retinol, magnesium, K2, the retinol, I think before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about that. Um, it's interesting because you have the vitamin D receptor, the BDR, and then you have the uh, retinol receptor, RXR, and they do something called heterodimerize and they have to come together um, to make molecules to, to actually work and activate um, and so there definitely is a, a close relationship between retinol and uh, vitamin D, uh, whether it's, you know, one we made or supplemental. And so with all these anecdotal stories of people getting better or worse, I think it's really important to look at, you know, RBC magnesium, red blood cell magnesium, um, retinol status, maybe active copper, ceruloplasmin, I'm sure it plays a role. Um, 
I just feel like everything kind of works together. And if we just focus in on two things or even three things, um, I think if someone's going to test their vitamin D, which we have to clarify is 25 D, I think, as Georgie mentioned, you should challenge your doctor and say, measure my calcitriol as well, because it's important to look at both in relationship. And that's, that's my main argument is like, <laughs> you have to look at everything together instead of just one or two things. Can you say the first part again? Cause I feel like not many people would make that argument. So you're saying the, the 25 D increases parathyroid hormone and it also increases 125 D. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. And it's not a for sure thing, but it's a possibility of supplementing D3 can go to 25 D and then, and I believe these are catalyzed by magnesium, these conversions, and then that could convert to active 125 D. So there's a lot of ifs or possibilities and whenever there's a possibilities, I take a step back and say, okay, maybe we should use light, which makes lumisterol, which is D1, which is a pre D3. Right. And after you make lumisterols, 72 hours, you don't need any more light. And from that, your body can make uh, Lumistarol actually has its own VDR and it makes um, tons of molecules that are protective to the system. So it's a totally different. Well, I mean, we should have traded papers before that. I'd be interested to see what you're reading. Cause I mean, even on Wikipedia, it says PTH stimu uh, also stimulates the production of calcitriol or 125D. It says uh, 125D acts in concert with parathyroid hormone uh, et cetera, et cetera, to break down bone. Uh, and what else was I looking for? Um, and the, the, the parathyroid hormone is increasing that one alpha hydroxylase enzyme that increases the 125D. Mm -hmm. So I, so, okay, this, and this is another paper from Poole in 2005, and they say the principal target organ for PTH are the kidneys uh, increasing 125D formation. Again, I, I could be, th this seems um, not controversial. And so I guess maybe it's a controversial point of view, but it doesn't even seem reproducible in, <laughs> I would imagine if somebody had a low vitamin D level and a mid parathyroid hormone, like 10 out of 10 times, if they supplemented vitamin D, their parathyroid hormone would come down. But um, yeah, other, do you remember reading under what mechanism supplementing a precursor like D3 uh, would actually raise PTH? Uh, because it, let's say it raises calcitriol, right? I mean, if calcitriol and PTH, the official dogma is that they have an inverse relationship, right? One suppresses the other. If, it, uh, if PTH rises, calcitriol rises, but then if it rises to a certain point, then it exerts a negative feedback mechanism and, and starts to suppress PTH. So if I'm supplementing colicalciferol or any precursor, and the, the anti-vitamin D crowd says, don't do that because it's going to raise calcitriol, we should at the very least not be seeing an increase in PTH, right? You should be seeing a drop. Even if there is a raise in calcitriol, which I have seen studies that show that, right? We should at the very least not be seeing a precursor raise the levels of PTH. I think there's a lot of context, like mineral status of the person and what kind of water they're drinking. If it's full, like here in Idaho, I tested my water when I moved into this house, tons of iron, tons of calcium. I think that's usually like a variable that's missing. Like yeah. Everyone up here in North Idaho is getting slammed with iron and calcium. And I see it. They're just breaking down by the age of 40 or whatever. Fibromyalgia, sorts of fibro fibrotic conditions. Um, I, have you guys seen that pregnant women actually have a boost of 40%? I actually posted this study on my social media today of um, active 125D during pregnancy. 
And so there's like, we, we know there's a natural increase in prolactin, right? During pregnancy, but there's right. actually a natural increase in, in active D during pregnancy of 40%, which is pretty significant. So wouldn't there be an argument that prolactin and prolactin increases cosutriol? So yes. basically, yeah, go ahead, Dan. <laughs> Sorry, I was going to say, I have articles, but yeah, go ahead, keep going. No, I'm saying that basically like, so, so, you, uh, so are you, uh, Matt, are you, are you supporting the argument that it's good to raise cosutriol, that that's the, that's the vitamin D we should be targeting or that we should not be raising, we should not be supplementing D3 because we don't want to raise cosutriol. Which one? It depends. If, if someone's low in calcitriol because they don't have, they're not dealing with Lyme or Epstein-Barr or a chronic infection, then supplementing D I think is not harmful, but right. I would I would assume that most people are dealing with chronic infection just because of the state of the world right now with heavy metals and EMFs and all sorts of stuff. And so with a high calcitriol, um, I guess my argument is supplementing D3 will raise that even higher, which has a cap at like 71 that you don't want right. to go beyond. Right. Uh, what about something, well, I don't want to call it simpler, but like uh, very widespread, like cal dietary calcium deficiency. Uh, like I think the, the RDA for calcium is something like what, 600 or 800 milligrams. Um, those ranges were defined on like severely malnourished prisoners. Um, and I think recent studies found that at least in people with kidney disease, you need about two grams a day in order to, to rein in the parathyroid slash calcitriol system. Um, I don't think most people in the Western world come anywhere near close the two grams a day. The only people who do are the Dutch uh, because it seems that all the eat is dairy. <laughs> well, maybe the Maasai in Africa too, but uh, the studies mostly covered the, the developed world. And I think most people in most Western countries would not come even close to one gram. Um, so they're barely, barely ingesting the RDA. And it's similar to salt, right? Multiple studies already show that unless you're ingesting about five grams of salt daily, um, you will be activating the aldosterone system. So, so why not something similar with calcium? Since we're now, you know, seems to be we're all chronically dietary deficient in calcium, that alone can actually raise PTH and calcitriol as well. Um, what, so why why not supplement with the calcium, and then see where you're where you stand? Let's say like a month later, because the response of PTH and calcitriol to calcium increase of calcium intake should be fairly rapid. I think it, even within two weeks, based on the studies I've seen, there should be a response. And if they're still, there's a still a problem, um, then they, this can be investigated further. And like, let's say it could be an immune, a problem with the immune system, like a chronically activated Epstein-Barr or herpes virus or whichever one is capable of like uh, going from dormant to active state uh, repeatedly uh, or not immune condition. Like I think people with inflammatory bowel disease tend to have a high calcitriol, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but uh, again, like uh, what, what makes you think that um, a, a high calcitriol would not be due to something more benign, like a, like a dietary, I don't know, a bad diet for lack of a better purpose. Like whether that's insufficient calcium or insufficient magnesium, um, or like other minerals that can fill in for each other. Uh, why, why would the anti-vitamin D crowd assume or automatically it's a, it's an immune problem or a chronic condition instead of a, just a dietary problem. So hmm. kind of to rein that back just to give a little bit more context. I mean, I think what you're saying, Georgie, is that the active D can be elevated by other means by a lack of anything, because essentially yeah. it elevates under stress. And I think Ray has talked about this too, and he kind of stresses that the 
the store D to the active 125 D is, is, is very much like how progesterone is when, you know, when you have an optimal amount of progesterone, the 125 stays low. So your cortisol would stay low. And so, mm -hmm. but when cortisol elevates, the progesterone will drop, which will produce that kind of indifference. And it's kind of one, the, the stored is the more the protective factor, whereas the 125 is more of, you know, it produces some sort of inflammatory or, or anti-inflammatory response initially, but in the long-term 125 elevated would basically produce a lot of the negatives that I think both camps would agree upon. It's just that what, you know, what I have an understanding is, is it, what are you supposed to do with this store? Because obviously the anti-D camp to my understanding, they're like low is better. 12 is good. Under 20 is better. There's no increases in in, in, in longevity or even any health results by having it any higher than those numbers, which I think there's obviously some discretion there, but that is their argument. And if you study like Trevor Marshall, he's basically saying 12 is ideal and that you should have minimal D, no D at all, because he's treating all these autoimmune issues. So would that ever make any sense? So why, why, why um, I was gonna say, um... Oh, yeah. One thing you were just reminding me that with the progesterone, just as you said, progesterone is a precursor to cortisol. And for many people, including doctors, they're saying absolutely no way for a person with hypercortisolemia, you should be giving progesterone. Turn out to be the exact opposite. Progesterone is uh, also not only a, a cortisol receptor blocker, but it's also inhibits the enzyme 11-beta-HSD1, which synthesizes cortisol, while also accelerating the activity of the 11-beta-HSD2, which deactivates cortisol. Uh, and all of the claims about progesterone causing Cushing disease turn out to be only with synthetic progestins that do not have any of these uh, any of these effects. So why wouldn't something similar, even though it's a complete just a hypothesis right now? Well, not hypothesis. There are some studies showing that vitamin D3 being a precursor like progesterone actually lowers the effects of uh, the levels of calcitriol. The study was in cows, right, and with a very high dose. Uh, I can try to find human studies. But it seems plausible. And also, why even worry about the levels of 25-hydroxy uh, D3 if the anti-vitamin D crowd claims that it's inactive, right? You, should, you shouldn't be worrying about it. It's only, you only care how much of it converts into calcitriol, right? Or it, it, am I reading this wrong? You, Matt, you want to talk about that? Why, why yeah. is there such a focus on who cares how much it is if it is inactive? Yeah, it definitely, I mean, it's just, they call it the storage form, but it definitely has its, um, its effects. I think where I'm coming from is that the cal calcitriol or 125D, it doesn't just wreck PTH and that's its only effect, you know, and it's not uh, 25D is bad, 125 is good. Um, it's, it's more complex than that. Um, like 125 high is bad and 25D high is bad. Um, so it's always in balance, right? But I, it's my understanding that the active or calcitriol 125D makes the uh, vitamin D response elements. And there's over 5,000 of them, um, which are a lot. And these are like our chemical and biological warriors. Um, so antimicrobial peptides, um, macrophages, T cells, leukocytes, there's like over 900 <laughs> like warriors that these will pump out. And so I think that's, that's really important to understand. Cause I don't think 25 D does that like the active form. And I just think 
if people take care of their underlying infections by fortifying the system with, you know, like high quality dairy, as George was talking about, you know, magnesium, K2, niacinamide, aspirin, all these protective things, then they could strengthen their system without having to supplement D to do so, because that will naturally lower their, they don't need as many warriors, right? If they're not, if they don't have as many battles to fight. Can, can I respond? First, a question. Uh, are you aware of a study or situation, even anecdotal, where a person had high 25-hydroxy uh, D3, which is the, the storage form, right? And low or normal um, calcitriol, and this resulted in a bad... The person was found to have a pathological condition. Like, uh, I don't know, whatever, whatever. It could be autoimmune, could be like a suppressed immune system or like cancer or whatnot. I have not been able to see... Um, a study which, because I looked at for some studies dealing with uh, uh, vitamin D excess, and, and all every single one of them dealt with calcitro excess, and I have not been able to find anything pathologically related that had basically the person had high levels of the storage form, and that's what was associated with pathology. If you're aware of such a study, um, please send it over. If you know, like, I mean, if you share, if you know, if you have something in mind right now, please share. Um, and the second thing is, uh, basically, if um, speaking of the macrophages, uh, the, there was a group of scientists from Japan which made the news maybe about a decade ago, and even Ray wrote uh, a newsletter on that and emailed some people about it. There's this thing called GCMAF, uh, GCMAF, also known as vitamin D binding protein, um, and the Japanese group basically proved that it can cure cancer. Of course, some of the studies got retracted. There was this big back and forth, like how can, dare these people. I checked and calcitriol does not raise vitamin D binding protein, also known as GCMAF. However, the precursors do. And also having a high storage, le high level of the storage form, 25-hydroxy, also elevates GCMAF. So it seems that at least the precursor and the storage form have a pro-immune effect. Um, versus the calcitriol, um, which is more more of a more of a mixed bag. Um, do you have? I mean, have you seen any studies that distinguish between the effects of the different forms of vitamin D um, on the immune system? Um, is there a consensus in the anti-vitamin D group that one of them is a pro-immune, the other one is immune suppressive, or they all consider mostly in the, into the same bag? That's a good question. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not too sure. That's. I made a note. I have a lot of homework here. <laughs> I'm glad you brought up GCMEF because I know people. I made yogurt recently, and people were doing that orally. But I heard topical GCMEF is more effective. I don't know if you've looked into that. Uh, one thing or I. You may turn out just take more vitamin D. That's what. That's what I'm getting. <laughs> but but I want to make sure that you know. The, what I'm curious is if you can find something that confirms that Constitutional didn't raise it. But, uh, but the precursors, whether you took a, an un, uh, truly a precursor like a D3 or the storage form, were actually able to raise it uh, because I guess they require distribution around the body, uh, while apparently calcitriol has a very localized site of action and you know, it's synthesized locally from the precursors. So it doesn't really float around. It shouldn't float around much, which is another confirmation that having elevated levels of calcitriol is, is, is not a good idea. It's not a good sign. Yeah, I think I remember reading somewhere that there was a, a belief that that the store or the supplemental D uh, could also activate the VDRs that the 125 was activating, which was creating this kind of 
uh, inflammatory response. And that's why they were telling you to avoid the, the supplemental D because it was activating these same BDRs. And so uh, from my understanding, that's where a lot of the reason was, that's why it was creating this immune response. That's why they say, hey, when people take supplemental D, you feel better because it's creating this immune response. But my thought is, well, I think it's kind of down-regulating the effects of 125, which are kind of hyper-stimulating things. So how do we, you know, and again, if, if Matt's like, hey, I'm reading, <laughs> I'm reading research that shows you that 25D is creating increases in PTH and 125. Well, yeah, you would think, no, that's a bad thing. But we everything I have read too <laughs> is saying the opposite, you know, that the, the 25D is actually lowering PTH and also lowering the 125, which would be a good thing because you don't want elevated levels of the 125 or the active D. I mean, that's why I asked for if Matt can find a study yeah. that shows that if there is any disease state associated with high levels of the precursors, because I have not found a single study that talks about that. It's always elevation of calcitriol that's associated with this or that disease state. You're saying, so, so again, the, the, so I'm looking at a study right here from 2013. It says the incidence of primary hyperparathyroidism in, Den in Denmark continues its remarkable rise. And so again, if the parathyroid hormone is so problematic, shouldn't we be seeing an epidemic of 25D high levels? Do you know what I mean? Like that, that doesn't make, it, it's, doesn't make much, much well, sense. Danny, Danny I'm glad you brought that up. I, I don't know if you guys have looked into this, but supraphysiological doses of D3 get stored as D3. So it's kind of scary because it's like, where did it go? Right. <laughs> I'll answer that. I'll answer because I actually found a study that, that, that answers that. Uh, they found out at least in rats that it gets stored into the fatty tissue and they thought, oh, that's the mechanism why rats die weeks later, uh, days later after overdosing on vitamin D3, but not immediately because that thing gets stored into the fatty tissue. And then when the rat is stressed, there's increased lipolysis, all of these things, I mean, this vitamin D3 floods their system and that's what it kills them. Turn out that's not the case. They actually stressed the rats and then they found out that their blood levels of neither vitamin D3 nor calcitriol changed. So yes, it is stored, like most steroids, it's lipophilic and stored into the fatty tissue, but it seems that the, that the body has a control mechanism to avoid overloading the system with excess vitamin D3. Maybe there is an unknown storage form that we don't know about that's largely inactive. Just like if you take too much T3, it gets converted into T2 and T1. And those are relatively inactive. They have very, they have very long half-life. And then later on, um, you, they can actually get converted back into T3, but it's not nearly as efficient, uh, the conversion process. So it's not like you can load up on T3, you know, as much as you want and then stop taking it for a month. Um, it doesn't have the same back conversion efficiency. But funny thing, so again, D3 seems to be stored into the fat tissue mostly, but for some reason during elevated lipolysis, either it doesn't get, uh, uh, if it gets released, either something quickly deactivates it or converts it very rapidly into a form that the researchers did not test for. I think they tested for, again, D3, because that's what they were administering, the 25-hydroxy, I think the 24-25-hydroxy they also tested, and 1-25-hydroxy. Neither one of these got elevated. So it was a mystery, but at least kind of shows you that so even an excess of D3, at least in rats, it's, it doesn't kill them by the mechanism that the researchers thought. It's got something else is going on. I mean, it wasn't the belief that they all got massive osteoporosis like immediately, isn't and isn't that what the thought is? 
I think it, it, the, the thought is that it causes uh, uh, fatal hypercalcemia, basically, at the point where, because hypercalcemia can kill. In fact, many patients with cancer, very advanced cancer, when they start getting the metastasis into the bones, they, their, their blood calcium starts to go into like the 12 and 13, and that's considered emergency condition. They Actually, most cancer patients with metastasis into the bones end up dying from, from acute hypercalcemia. It, it just floods the the heart and they die for like cardiac failure. And I think that's that's the proposed mechanism of how high doses cholecalciferol D3, you, when used as rat poison, that's how it kills them by mimicking that same effect. But they administer like a million, the equivalent of a million doses, uh, I think a million units per kilogram for rats, which for a human would be like uh, 15 million per kilogram. So that's a lot of D. Yeah. So that goes back to the using, uh, you know, knowing that the that supplemental D is essentially in rat poison. And I think that's definitely a reason people say, I don't want to take, you know, D3 because it's, it's rat poison. And so if I'm taking it in slow doses or even smaller doses, it's, it's, it's having a slower effect on the system um, and having a negative effect. But from what you're saying, it sounds like that mechanism isn't really what's happening. At least not according to the study, because that's that's why they actually did the study. They wanted to see if that's how it kills them, because there is a delay. There is a, it's known that the rats that they OD on that poison, they don't die immediately. They die with a lag of like four to seven days. And the, the thought was, well, it takes time for that old D3 to get metabolized into calcitriol, right? Because D3 has a relatively high, uh, uh, um, uh, relatively long half-life. I think it's like a few days. So they thought, okay, so we know it's lipophilic. We know it's getting stored. We don't know where. So let's administer the equivalent of a rat poison to the rats. That's how, that's how high the doses were and see what happens. So yes, it did get stored into the fatty tissue, but when they stressed the rats, I think they made them run on like a, on, on the, on these wheels, right? And lipolysis increased. For some reason, neither one of the levels of all of these vitamin D isomers that they tested increased. Um, again, blood testing is, is, is of course, um, subject to all of these restrictions that um, for some steroids like vitamin D, maybe the body has truly a very quick detox mechanism. And if you test every hour, you're not going to catch those spikes that, that uh, maybe happen. But that study said that according to them, um, the mechanism of action of how vitamin D, D3 kills through hypercalcemia are not related to, to the uh, elevations of calcitriol, at least not in the time frame that they did, which was like a week, I think. Okay, and, and, and point to the fact that even if it was, I mean, they are giving it such a high dose. And of course, if you give a human millions of units of, of, D, of D3, you might end up with a negative result and you could obviously get hypercalcemia. I mean, so if that I take a thousand, is, uh, sorry, go ahead. Okay. I was going to say, if I take a thousand grains of thyroid, I'm going to die. So it's like, well, I don't understand the gigantic doses uh, revealing something sinister about the, the molecule. That the, Like how many doses of shilajit shil would it take to kill me? Like 50,000, 50, you know what I'm saying? I, I don't understand. That argument seems very low hanging fruit, I feel like. Yeah, so those matters. That has about the same metabolism as us per kilogram of body weight. They got the one million those uh, the my, 1 million IU dosages of D3 and in those animals, it lowered their calcitriol and it lowered their PTH. And the mechanism of lowering the calcitriol was twofold. One, uh, basically the lowering of PTH, which reduces the synthesis de novo of calcitriol. And two, 
the presence, I think, of cholecalciferol, I think that, that lends credence to, to the theory that they're all active in the vitamin D receptor. When, when you have something there in much higher dosages, maybe weaker, but it's such a massive dose, it tells the body to increase the acceleration of calcitriol because you don't need nearly as much. And that study found that basically the, uh, the, the, that the massive dose of D3 increased the conversion of calcitriol into its acid form, which is the form for excretion. It, it makes it more water soluble. And that, that's how the, the, the organism essentially uh, pee it out uh, through their urine. Uh, but again, so a cow weighs about 400 kilos on average, or five, let's say 500 kilo. So a million units divided by 500 kilo is what, 20,000 per kilogram? Around what, there. 20, is it two, I, think it's, I think it's 20,000. <laughs> I must oh, tell math in high school. <laughs> yeah. so, math. <laughs> that will be the same dosage in humans. 20,000 IUs per kilo in humans uh, is nothing to, to laugh at. I mean, I think that's per kilogram, right? Then we're talking here about dosages that are, I don't know, a hundred times lower, maybe like even 20,000 IUs would be considered high, even for a pro vitamin D person. Uh, so we're talking about two to 3,000 units IUs daily, uh, at most five, unless there is proven deficiency, where you basically need to quickly you have kidney disease. Most doctors will not even give you the vitamin D as a precursor. They'll insist on injecting directly with calcitriol. One, one other thing really quick, I often I've heard it's like, oh, no, you need to focus on the vitamin A or the magnesium or the insert nutrient here. Like nobody's making the argument once you supplement vitamin D, you don't need to worry about any other <laughs> nutritional aspect. You know, if anything, vitamin D and thyroid seem so similar that it would be even more important to fortify the nutrition with things like liver or oysters, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's another way I could possibly see harm being done. Like if somebody was supplementing vitamin D and their nutrition was just awful, like they might be stepping on the break of their metabolism and then not, uh, again, fortifying their nutrition or, or meeting their nutritional needs. And so, so again, the, the, but I've, I've heard that multiple times. Yeah, I think there's a general argument in the anti-D group that it is essentially it depletes the body of certain nutrients. So supplementing D depletes the body of, I think, I think the arguments are A, potassium, magnesium, and copper. And I guess my thoughts are is D is kind of pro-metabolic, so that it would just be utilizing more of those nutrients. And so in a body that's deficient or you know, doesn't have enough or not providing it with the ample amount, you're going to see those deficiencies show up. But is it because it's depleting or just because it's losing? Yeah, th this is a game the low carb people play too. They'll say, oh, the fructose is depleting copper when it's like activating cytochrome C ox oxidase. Jubal, jubal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, increasing the rate of metabolism. And so again, it's like the frame. Uh, you might need more of that nutritional thing when, again, you're increasing the rate of metabolism. And if, and if vitamin D appears to have so many uh, similarities to taking thyroid hormone, but yeah, the, but again, it's, it's like a semantics, basically, I think. So is well, there any evidence that vitamin D increases the excretion or prevents the absorption of any of these nutrients? I'm not aware of, of any such evidence. Yeah. Matt? Yeah, I've, uh, yeah, so... It's all good stuff. I have a few uh, articles up here. Um, let me pull it up. One's on a uh, potassium wasting. Um, we should have exchanged papers. Before I we is, that on the, <laughs> is that the John? Is that the John Ferris article on potassium? Yeah. Yep. 
Yeah, so I read yeah. that, and my belief was it, it came it came back to the dosage too. I think they gave these rats mm. like they were like a pound, two thousand, two hundred thousand IU's of vitamin D, and saw that they had potassium wasting, which again, for a human, that would be like twenty million units, I think. Which we're not going to do. If for a, for a non-dying human. There should not be a situation where they're wasting potassium. It's an intracellular mineral tightly bound to the proteins that are inside of the cell. If you have a high levels of potassium in the blood, doctors get extremely worried. You may even get rushed to the hospital because you, your heart may stop. The lethal injection drugs are mostly potassium salts. Um, so if you have high levels of potassium in the body, I mean, I would be very, very surprised if vitamin D can actually cause that uh, because... It's very hard to, to have a potassium deficiency. In fact, that's one of the reasons doctors never test, almost never test for potassium in the blood uh, because they think that it's next to impossible to have a, a deficiency. First of all, not only it's an intracellular mineral, intracellular mineral, but the body drastically upregulates its absorption mechanism to prevent such a deficiency from happening. The only time you get into a deficiency, it's not a deficiency in the blood, but in a particular organ that is that has some kind of a very high rate of breakdown. You can get mild localized potassium deficiency in the muscles if you have a condition called rhabdomyolysis, which can occur uh, under extreme exertion. Like if you run a marathon, you can get into rhabdomyolysis, right? But again, it doesn't affect the whole body potassium stores because inside of the healthy cell, potassium is inside of the cell and is not outside. So uh, I would be very curious to see under what mechanism. I bet this high dosage actually had necrotic effect on these cells. They started dying and started spilling their potassium in the bloodstream. I am not aware of any mechanism through which an, uh, a, a chemical can induce cellular uh, potassium deficiency inside of the cell without actually killing that cell. Um, so if, if there will be a great finding if you can find that a physiological dosage of vitamin D3, let's say, let's make it higher just, just for the argument's sake, a 50,000 unit of vitamin D, even taken singly, can increase the rate of potassium excretion. That will be huge. I think that if that is evidence is available, uh, it would call for banning vitamin D immediately because it can kill people. I keep going, Matt. What, yeah, so, what, yeah. So I guess it depends on, you know, what we consider high dose. And for me, like anything over like 2000 is high dose. Um, but what was in the rat study? Like what, what, what dosage did he use? Um, yeah, I think, I mean, it was a significant amount. Um, I don't know if it, I don't know if what Kate said it would, would translate, I but I would, it was, yeah, it was 200,000 units. Was it per rat or per milligrams per, of kilograms? Oh, per, yeah, per, per rat. I think that was like, yeah. uh, I, don't, I don't know if they had, it was like a pound or a kilogram for the rat yeah. weight, but the, the units they gave them were 200,000. So if it's 200,000 units per rat, you, you usually multiply that by a five because a rat weighs 200 grams. So you need to multiply by a five to get the dosage per kilogram. So that's, so 200,000, that's 1 million units per kilogram of body weight for a rat. To get the human dosage of that, you divide by seven. So one million by seven is about 150,000 units, roughly, I'm approximating, per kilogram for a human. So 150,000 units per kilogram, that's over 15 million units of D3 for a person weighing 100 kilos. So even for a relatively minor person weighing 50 kilos, that's seven and a half million units of vitamin D. 
I, I mean, it, I, I don't know what that study proves except that vitamin D can be toxic um, in, in such a dose. Too much sunlight. Well, I want to kind of bring it back to the Danny's original question, which was like, why would it lower nutrients? Oh, okay. And my, like my current theory or hypothesis is actually based on this paper um, that talks about VR. It's called Vitamin D, the Alternative Hypothesis, 2009, Paul Burt. And um, it stated as just fact that um, 25D is a VDR antagonist. And so since it does that, um, secosteroid and bacterial li ligands accumulate and the innate immune system is less able to effectively target pathogens. Mm -hmm. um, it's my current understanding, my very kindergarten understanding of infectious disease that pathogens tend to focus on shutting down the VDR because if they can do that, they shut down the immune system. And so I don't know if you've seen that in studies that 25D antagonizes the VDR receptor. Like the active doesn't do that. It actually does the opposite. <laughs> so do they cite, do they have like a reference for that claim? Usually something like that. It's like so generic. Um, it's either very widely accepted or they have to cite a reference for that, for that claim. Because I mean, I just type a very quick search in Google, colicalciferol VDR. And the first three studies that come up all say that basically uh, the VDR is, uh, is known to activate, I'm sorry, colicalciferol is known to also activate VDR, albeit um, in much higher, much lower potency than the active form of vitamin D, also known as 125-dihydroxy vitamin D3. Um, so I guess there are many studies, right? And but uh, if there is a reference on that claim that it's a that it's a VDR antagonist, um, I'll be very interested in reading it. He just sent. I it. just put a, I just put a link. Yeah, <laughs> forgot there was that function. So let's see. And I think, I think, and, and maybe you guys want to uh, touch on this too, uh, Danny and Georgie. And it, it, I, when I've like referenced all this to, to, to Dr. P, I think a lot of times he comes back to just the entire theory of the receptor versus membrane theory, going back to that, that is just not the way that the cells operate. And so when, and so he goes back into that, kind of into Gilbert Ling's work um, that everything it like the cell is reactive to things based on the health of the cell and its environment based on that there's just these like receptors or um, uh, things that are just kind of constantly plugging into each other. And right. I think because of that, there's like that idea that everything can kind of have an interaction. And so I don't know if you guys want to kind of touch on that. Yeah, he doesn't. He say the whole cell is a receptor, he says, and it changes given its um, circumstances. But, you know, I did. He, he does like to keep things relatively simple, you know, even though he's a complex guy. <laughs> but the, uh, one of my questions to him in an older uh, interview was like, you feel comfortable recommending like calcium and vitamin D to people. And I was like, why is that? And it was basically like, yeah, he's consulting with a large amount of pe random people. And he felt like those things were so safe that he felt comfortable recommending them. And so, again, that's why, that's why I think I'm, gl I'm glad we're having this conversation because, again, the, the therapies we have access to are so limited. And so if vitamin D is toxic or it's, it's off the table, that's a huge loss, I feel like, for everybody. Because, uh, because again, I believe that it's a very safe, useful therapy for a broad spectrum of problems. And I didn't come to that conclusion by reading a bunch of papers. 
I feel like over a, over a lifetime of like battling my own health problems that it, it, it was apparent to me over and over again. And nobody should take that uh, anecdote as fact. I'm, I'm just saying how it is. So, so again, uh, that's <laughs> my general view of it. And again, there would have to be something so solid. Like I, I would be even willing to entertain that I was fooling myself taking vitamin D and it was having a bad effect, but I was interpreting it as good or something like radiation can have a, a, a negative effect, but that can lower inflammation or estrogen can kill pituitary hormones and that can alleviate symptoms. But there would have to be something really solid to ground that like presupposition on rather than just kind of this floating uh, uh, like ethereal kind of idea that the, the system is complex and therefore sh we should not uh, interfere with it or something. I like the immunosuppression. Um, and, and yeah, I definitely think you can't discount your own experience. I've been a testament to that. So <laughs> you definitely have to go with what you've experienced, but um, Emmanuel Ravishi, Ravishi, hard to say his name. He was using omega-3 fatty acids as a immunosuppressive, like a chemotherapy drug. So that's kind of how I look at secosteroid hormone D is like a immunosuppressive drug that could be used in context. Uh, you know, anything could be a medicine, anything could be a poison kind of an idea. But Okay. But what is the mechanism for immune suppression in a, in a basic yeah. lay language? <laughs> Well, to me, the VDR thing, I mean, because I, I don't know, I guess Georgie said he saw the yeah, contrary. I'm going to put the link right I, now. From what I've, I'll, yeah, from all I've read, it, it deactivates or, or, or suppresses the immune system, which can give temporary um, benefits. But the long term, just like taking omega-3s, you know, people's skin clears up and they feel better and their memory improves. And then long term, they get Alzheimer's. Uh, I think there's more to the, to the vitamin D's than VDR. Um, I just uh, sent the link. So uh, I checked the three largest chemical vendors. They all, they're all selling colecalciferol, which is D3, as, and they're labeling as VDR agonist, VDR activator. Um, now, again, of course, there could be discrepancy between, but something so basic, right? You will be a truly, <laughs> we're, in a, we're in a big mess. If the medical community, the chemical community are treating this <laughs> as the exact opposite chemical of, 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 uh, of what one side says versus another. Um, I, I believe, I think actually I have seen that study. Um, I don't think there is a reference for that claim in the study. I think they're just stating as fact and then just continue with the explanation, right? One other thing I want to point out, and Georgia, you can speak to this, but like activating the, well, Matt, maybe you can clarify this. I, I, maybe in your podcast a few times, they were talking about activating the immune system being a good thing, but in the, the mat, like the kind of the bioenergetic Matzinger or Cunliffe model, you don't really want your immune system to become activated. And that's, uh, that's when the tissues are distressed. But I, I feel like maybe on your podcast that was said a few times. So again, that's like another par paradigm turned completely on its head. And if they're saying you want the, activated immune system that might, you might actually want the opposite if Jamie Cunliffe and Polly Matzinger are right. So Matt, are, yeah. are you saying that there's some level, like some level of active D is good, but then the, the, too high, the active D is bad. Is that the, the, the thought? Yeah, exactly. And I actually came to that recently. Like I said, I'm still looking into all this stuff. I'm just, when I'm looking into something, I take a step back from. So, so how do we define, how do we define the ideal? Not it. Not ideal, but how do we define an optimal range for everybody? Like, would it, do you think it would be the same for everybody? Would it be like a based on a ratio of like the storage versus the active, 
or like a specific uh, percentage range of the active for each person or, or a bolt, bolt or something else? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I'm a big fan of Morley Robbins full Monty iron panel because a lot of people have like cured their autoimmunity and uh, crazy diseases with that basic uh, test, looking at different markers of iron and transferrin and ceruloplasmin and all those markers, iron saturation percent. And so it, with that test, you look at things in relationship to each other. Um, so I think the vitamin D should be the same where it should be that ratio of calcitriol to storage D and, and you should try to get under two. Um, it would just make sense to look more at like a re ratio relationship thing instead of just one marker. I think you guys would agree. One other thing I did want to comment on, what, <laughs> what's the use of calling it hormone D? Isn't that a clear attempt to kind of frighten people? Like, be, because, it, because it's kind of saying hormones inherently are harmful to take. And so, I mean, what, what is the purpose of continuously meant calling it hormone D? Good question. That's great. Well, it, yeah. <laughs> well, it used to be called um, a hormone. Um, so it, it, it is, and it doesn't, I don't think it's a scare tactic, at least when I say it. I mean, Georgie sold me on pregnenolone and progesterone, not decreasing your own production. And recently I've seen like Doris Lowe talk about melatonin in the same way, like taking misogynous actually increases your endogenous. Um, so I, my intention is definitely not to scare people away. I think it's just to emphasize that our cells make it. Um, and I, I'm sure a lot of you have looked into Fritz Albert Pop, the biophysicist that was studying like um, light that, that our cells emit, like extreme low frequency ultraviolet light. Because yeah. obviously we create a magnetic field, we create a, a light, a, we emit photons. Um, and so in the context of this discussion and lipofuscin, I've really been meditating on that idea with us actually creating UV light from within. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I, I guess I haven't looked into the exact wavelengths, you know, UVA, UVB, if it's a mix. Um, but um, it, it, it's interesting to consider. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying we don't need light or we don't need the sun, but I mean, if we're making it, something to think about. <laughs> you say we can produce vitamin D endogenously through like inner irradiation, like in the, within ourselves. There'll be very, there'll be idea. fascinating yeah. happens. Yeah. I, I think that is a theory. Cause I think if you, if you actually read on Trevor Marshall's work, I mean, he tells his patients to actually avoid the sun to not eat any vitamin D or any contact with D and his basic premise is that, yeah, that your cells are producing their own D as to why it's a hormone. Um, and I, and I, I question, it's like, is that just because the body is under stress and now it's producing the 125 D, but I mean, he claims to, again, on a case study basis, this isn't a, like a random controlled trial or anything, but he's claims to yes, help people with all sorts of autoimmune issues by dropping their D levels to 12 or less. You, you know, it also helps all sorts of autoimmune problems, carnivore diet. <laughs> so again, it's like the, the some of the things, so just stopping a lot of the toxic things of the food culture will mitigate lots of problems, but I don't think that reveals some truth about 
of vitamin D, but I could be wrong. But Matt, to you or to the Morley et al., there's no level of the the 25D that can get too low and, and result in a deficiency state? I think below 12 um, would be considered, you know, low, but I think it's always in context of the, and that ratio with the 20, with the active calcitriol. Um, so it depends if that's, you know, low as well. And I think the the discussion should be, we have to agree on what's low and usually we don't. And especially when I'm talking to people in the public, it's just, we have a completely different perception of what high and low are of yeah. not only D3, but 25 D and 125, all the different ones, different ideas of high and low. So <laughs> yeah, I would go back to that. Ori- I would go back to that original paper. I quoted it said optimal vitamin D status defined by uh, estimated Maximum PT, uh, PTH suppression does not occur until 25D levels uh, are greater than 40 nanograms per milliliter. And so, again, I, I could be wrong, but I, like the parathyroid hormone and prolactin weren't con- continuously brought up. And again, we should probably always be referencing parathyroid hormone and prolactin in these conversations. So trying to like establish a level without those things seems kind of... Uh, doesn't seem like it's going to result in anything meaningful. But I, again, I know you're saying that it increases, but I'd, I'd still like, I'd love to see something about that because that is the opposite of everything I've ever seen. Do you guys so know who... If the oh. ratios are important, are you saying that there could be a situation where high calcitriol, but low levels of 25 hydroxy would be okay? Um, because you have like uh, enough of the, or too much of the active... It consequently, the precursor gets depleted, right? Would that be considered okay? Like a like it's a my understanding that it won't it won't necessarily deplete the precursor. That's a good question. Um, but I think if the ratio is under two, um, a, a lot of people with say Lyme disease will have high one twenty five and low twenty five. Um, and I think where we get into the weeds and disagree is even healthy people, relatively healthy people have low 125 and low 25 D. Um, but that ratio is, is, is less than the sick person with so a hold on, healthy person. When you say low, you mean below the, the, the bottom end of the normal range or low meaning like we say the like normal the, range, but it, yeah, well, Mohammed Amer, John Topkins, 2012, he said, there's no clinical benefit of having a 25 D over 21 nanograms per milliliter so we can just use that as an arbitrary number so below 21 i guess okay so that's that today that is actually a state of deficiency according to the labs right because i think 30 is the Mm -hmm. minimum like they don't want you to have Mm -hmm. okay so so 25 should be below should be below 30 is what he's saying or below 20 right and then Mm -hmm. what about calcitriol he's saying that should also ideally be low right yeah, because if it's if it's high, what it's my understanding that if citriol or active D one twenty five is high, that means that the body is pumping out warriors because it's dealing with an attack, uh, right, viral, right. And, and, and that part, that part. Let's say I agree with it, but like if both the active one and the storage levels are low, which is what he's saying is good, how are you going to absorb calcium number one, and how are you going to keep PTH under control? I mean, PTH and and all, and at least calcitriol have a very well known um, like regulatory mechanism. I mean, basically, what what is going to drop PTH if the things that oppose it, such as the vitamin D isomers, active, inactive, etc., are low, 
And also, if they're low, you will not be absorbing much of the calcium you're ingesting anyways. What would keep PTH under control? I don't know of anything else that regulates PTH. I mean, those two are the primary regulators, dietary calcium and vitamin D in all of its isomers. Um, wouldn't that result in an abnormally high, uh, out-of-control PTH elevation? Kitty about to blast herself right now. <laughs> what? Okay. It's, Sorry. Kitty's like, I'm going to go take a nap. Kitty has left Kitty, the Kitty out. <laughs> Georgie, have you ever, or, either, or any of you for that matter, have you ever come across reading about the Clotha gene or the, the, um, the fiberglass growth factor 23? Have you come across research integrating that because that also can have an effect on the parathyroid hormone in this whole regulatory system? I've heard Ray mention it. I have not, I've never integrated it into my brain. I know it's important. And also Ray was saying that this stuff is clarified by Clotho. And so we should probably take a second to fully understand it. But Georgie, you probably... You, both you probably both androgens and vitamin D um, in all of its forms activate the Clotho gene. Um, and basically, I think the FGF23 is one of the feedback mechanism regulators. I think once your constitutional levels get too high, um, FGH rises and starts to inhibit 1,25-hydroxylase, I think is the enzyme, that produces calcitriol. So it's part of, it's part of the regulatory mechanism. 1-alpha-hydroxylase. Um, yes, alpha-hydroxylase. Yeah. 1-alpha-hydroxylase. I think that's the, yeah, that's the enzyme. Um, other than that, I mean, I've looked at some diseases where, where that, 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 that enzyme is, uh, is uh, overexpressed. Um, and I think some people with liver disease, uh, definitely kidney disease, um, and also, I'm forgetting, was like, I think cystic fibrosis. Um, they had an overexpression of, the, of that enzyme. But of course, it's all observational. They don't know if, it's, if that's the cause or it's simply you know, uh, an adaptive mechanism of the disease. And, and Ray was talking about it mimicking every feature of aging that you can imagine. And so, again, again that being so important for PTH, the health. PTH or, or calcitriol? No, the, 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 well, the clotho. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the that clotho, resulting yeah. in like skin aging and hypogonadism and hair loss and like every feature of aging was mimicked by that. I'm, I'm so stupid. What is it? The, the, the lower clotho, right? The lower clotho, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Clotho is the anti-aging gene. Yeah. Um, and they, they found that, that it's overexpressed in the naked mole rat, which mm -hmm. is the longest living and virtually immune to cancer. You cannot develop cancer in these animals. Uh, Ray thing is it's also the high carbon dioxide in their uh, dens that they live in, right? Uh, but they also found that basically they have high levels of the youth hormones. They have a lot of sex, uh, the ones that are the longest living. Um, and also they uh, basically they overexpress the clotogene. Well, again, yeah, that's why calcium and vitamin D, this stuff is so central. So if, again, if vitamin D increases parathyroid hormone, we're really out to lunch here because that would make nothing else make any sense uh, because all, all Ray's stuff is like a beautiful picture that's built on other things. And so there can't be like some radically incorrect aspect of it because there are so many other things that are important for integrating. So I have a question for you guys. So I'm not a big ancestral guy. You know, I think human history is not what they said. And we're not like paleo, you know, come from that. But still, uh, with that. George is um, an ancient you know, aliens guy. That's right. <laughs> David Wilcox. Hybrids. And what's his name? Uh, so, uh, uh, 
Zulos, whatever the, this guy with the, like the wacky yeah. hair, yeah. History Channel. <laughs> so my my question is this, and this is this made my wheels turn with the whole supplementing vitamin D and why I don't is in winter. I think you guys would agree, or maybe not, that twenty five D drops that that twenty five D is a seasonal variation molecule that is yeah. designed like here up in North Idaho. I have the D Minder app where I could see the UV emission from the sun, and it said you know at the start of the winter, it's like your next, uh, you know, next time you're going to see UV mat is like five months. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, cool. Thank God for my tanning light that I have here. But if I didn't have that, which I probably wouldn't have had like 500 years ago, um, what would 500 years ago, Matt do for his PTH? If PTH is so important, you know what I'm saying? Like how did we regulate PTH before vitamin D lamps in North Idaho? Um, Dietary calcium, above all, I would say, um, and other minerals as well. They can fill in. I think there, there are several studies showing that a very high calcium, di- uh, not high, uh, sodium diet can actually lower PTH as well, uh, which kind of makes sense with raised recommendations as well. Um, and I don't know if you noticed, but like uh, there's this used to be this web page where a guy was tracking, uh, you know, he, uh, he was fascinated by the fact that almost every large culture, like a large empire, valued sold more than gold, right? They would like pay each other in salt. They would wage wars over salt, et cetera, et cetera. And he checked like all the major civilizations that have been documented so far. And in every single one of them, salt was like almost worship. Um, so it must have had, we, and we know that salt stimulates the immune system. Um, so it could be, aside from its metabolism boosting effects, it could very well be that salt lowers parathyroid hormone um, and potentially increases the synthesis of the storage uh, form 25-hydroxy from cholesterol. That is just a conjecture. There is some evidence. It's not entirely a hypothesis that salt increases the conversion of cholesterol into dim- downstream hormones. Whether that also covers vitamin D, I have to check. But also that that's like an interesting point, but it doesn't mean we can't transcend and uh, be more resistant to stress all year round by mimicking summertime. You know, and so again, that's like my main beef with the paleo people is they're saying, hey, they're kind of creating these scenarios and saying, then we have to live like those scenarios. Uh, But again, if you think that the adolescent is healthy, like, why don't we try to be like the adolescent 24 seven? And maybe part of that is keeping a high vitamin D level, keeping parathyroid hormone low, keeping prolactin low. And we can like transcend the paleo model of uh, um, drudgery and hardship unnecessarily through the winter time, like avoid winter sickness altogether and just have a, a, a so-called summer metabolism year round rather than going through X amount of months of, of pain. Well, speaking of I mean, mimicking of the, of the paleo, uh, not mimicking, but like transcending it. Um, uh, I saw, I noticed one of the criticism of the uh, critic, criticism points in the list was most of the evidence in favor of vitamin D comes from epidemiological studies, but not from intervention ones. I don't think that's true. I mean, over the last year, just over the last year, now they're talking about potentially recommending vitamin D for COVID because several trials with humans, intervention ones, already found uh, benefit and found the strongest benefit in people with the lowest level of vitamin D when they started supplementing. So wouldn't that automatically at least rule out the claim that you want your storage forms as low as possible. I mean, the, the studies were very clear that the lower your, your storage level, the, the lower your levels of the storage form are, 
the you have like a two point percentage increase for every drop pointage drop of storage form. You had a two point percentage increase of dying from COVID nineteen. And when they supplemented these people, the more deficient you were, the more you benefited. In other words, the lower the the, the more drastically was lowered your risk for both hospitalization getting put on a ventilator and, and ultimately dying. There are several intervention trials already. They're pretty large. I think the one in Italy is the biggest. And Italy is actually a Mediterranean country. They should be having all the vitamin D they, they need, right? They're, they're like, it's a great weather all around. Maybe not, not lately, but uh, you know, it, it's a Mediterranean country. It should, they should not have an issue with vitamin D deficiency. Yet apparently they do. And when you supplement it, even in those people, um, seems to be rather beneficial. I think it's all the office workers indoor existence. I mean, I'm guilty of it being indoors. <laughs> I got to say anecdotally, that's, it's interesting though. Anecdotally. I mean, I'm almost through the winter here and I haven't taken D3 once. Um, I don't know, probably in like four years and I haven't experienced depression or anxiety or any negative effect. Um, but then again, I mean, it's tricky to say, cause I'm doing like red light sensory deprivation tank, hyperbaric <laughs> oxygen. So I'm doing so many things at once, I guess. So, who knows, but I could just say, I think, <laughs> I think we have to think about the average office worker, you know, like, yeah. we, like, uh, so something annoyed me about like Dave Asper is he like kind of, uh, a catered to the ultra elite, uh, demographic, you know? So if somebody is saying, Hey, like my life sucks, how do I improve it? Obviously like there are nutritional things. And then again, like it would be vitamin D would be something so basic and simple next to the carrot salad or something that could improve their life without buying a $450 spurty lamp. You know what I mean? Would the spurty lamp be better? Probably, you know, like it probably be, would be superior, but it's, but it's again, uh, working with the, the low, lower socioeconomic person that can't like, again, buy the $500 spurty lamp. Have you ever seen the reptile bulb? That's what I used to use. I used to rent out an RV when I got started in sharing health. And I, I tried all sorts of devices in there, built my own sauna at Home Depot with PVC. And, and I was using uh, reptile bulbs, UV reptile, you know, you just go to a reptile store and you like can use that. Lamps. Yeah, but the right. red ones. Yeah. yeah. Well, you can use, well, it's That's two separate really things. Yeah, the, the reptiles place. for the UV. Mm. Like if you go on Amazon and type like a, hemp growing lamp get like an entire section there's like they have a special section at amazon specifically for like for cbd and and, and hemp and plant growing lamps and they have like all different colors they have one that mixes red and uv uh in these tiny little diodes uh that was the, was the most expensive but it seems to be also the most popular because apparently it lasts forever right um and you know it's, it just doesn't burn out so anyways i mean there are plenty of options for, uh, for irradiating for labs for uh, raising the vitamin D levels. Because would you, would you guys agree, uh, and I didn't ask this before, that light is a superior source? Because it's it's seven dehydrocholesterol that uh, contributes like 28% becomes lumisterol, that mm -hmm. precursor, and then 32% becomes D3, and then 40% is other stuff. <laughs> um, but that lumisterol <laughs> you don't get if you just take choline calciferol. Every day at two o'clock, I will climb up this ladder that if I fall down, I will die. <laughs> so yeah, it's important to me, but also I know, I know how luxurious it is to not have anything to do at two o'clock and to be able to, to do that, you know, but 
But yeah, this ladder is three stories up and I will kill myself if I fall. So, but that's how much it means to me. It's important to me, obviously. But I, even if I'm laying out, I will still notice benefits from taking vitamin D topically. And so again, again, just an anecdote, but the number of people with low levels of vitamin D, high levels of parathyroid hormone, high levels of prolactin, and, and those seem to have some relationship with hair in general. So that's probably why I'm seeing so many of those, but it, it seems uh, again, just like a, a basic anti-inflammatory therapy and a lot. And, and again, a $15 bottle of Carlson vitamin D versus a $500 spurty lamp. Is there have research you, man, on have the you tried like navel application or topical in general <laughs> of D3? Yeah. No, I haven't. I'm, um, you're psychic. Cause I was going to ask, is there any da- data or, or studies on topical D3 raising your levels? Cause I, I know it topical D doesn't raise D3 doesn't raise your 125 levels from what I've seen. Right. Unlike oral. Um, okay. I am positive. I've, I have a few papers about it. Yeah. Um, well they also have like, I think in, in the UK now they have like a spray, which is literally just a mixture of alcohol uh, water and like of course they threw in one of the gums or like sorbitol or some other crap which you just spray in your mouth and it basically they found it more effective for the same effect in terms of raising the levels for some reason it was better for for the uh, mental pill being of the of the people who did it com- uh, compared to oral so maybe that's what it comes down to like oral if you take an orally it goes through the liver which is the first step of the conversion into calcitriol so maybe it does have a tendency to build up more into the into the in, you know move towards the the calcitriol pathway while if you're going if you're doing it through the skin then it maybe absorbs more as directly as v as d3 as colecalciferol it stays like that it's stored like that so it doesn't contribute that much uh, to, to raising of the calcitriol maybe maybe the route matters um i would try it to me actually or same as danny no matter what brand i tried when i tried the oral one it either did nothing or irritated my like my my, my GI tract. Uh, when I did topically, and I used to rub like on the uh, like forearms and neck, uh, and sometimes on the temples. There, there's some studies showing that it absorbs pretty well there too. And now I found that study about the navel absorption, and because that study actually used microgram amounts of testosterone, um, 200 micrograms, 200 micrograms in terms of vitamin D. That would be basically, that's one fit. That would be 8,000 units. That's a lot, right? But that study found that it fully absorbed. So you, you can try just a 1,000 or 2,000 units of vitamin D3 in your navel. It should fully absorb and, and you know, it may have a different effect. Like, Kitty, uh, you feel, Kitty, feel free to shut this down whenever you want. <laughs> well, I think at this point. Yeah, well, I just had to go and get some sugar because usually like my lunchtime is 12 and I was like, uh, I feel heaps better now. I had some marshmallows. So I'm good. I'm good. The blood sugar was low. She's it's like, I, Instant- I could see Kate was eating some gummies or what have you been eating? Gummies? I mean, I'm eating gummies. Yeah. See, she came well prepared. I didn't. Oh, Matt. I came <laughs> way prepared. I thought yeah. this could take a while. Isn't it amazing? Like you, it, it, I was sitting there thinking, oh God, I'm going to like pass out and then I go eat them up instantly, but feel better. Isn't it incredible? Sugar. Someone actually, someone actually commented on the post saying, could you get a panel to talk about sugar? And I'm like, well, there'd be no one we could have find in the pro-metabolic community that would be opposing sugar. So it probably wouldn't be a very interesting discussion because we're all pro-sugar. <laughs> when well, sure have- bonus, just advertise it and you'll see that there are plenty of people who hate <laughs> it and would, would love to participate. I Maybe we'll get one of the carnivore guys on, do you reckon? <laughs> yeah. Or the keto people. 
Have you guys looked into D2, like Ergo Calciferol, like the the mushroom mm-hmm. form? Because there's there's some mushroom companies selling that, or you can also get from Chaga Tea. Um, I've heard that that is just more toxic to the system because I think they I, that, used to add the D2 into the milk, and I don't I don't mm-hmm. think they put D2 in milk anymore. I think they put D3, but from mm-hmm. my understanding, it ended up to be much more toxic to to take it in the D2 form. Mm-hmm. And some of this to do the, the pharma industry wanted that as a drug to be able to prescribe. And they kind of lobbied that FDA. I, I don't think in the United States you're allowed to sell D2. I think they successfully lobbied that you basically have to sell, you can only sell D3 because at the time they thought it was inactive. So the, the, the pharma companies went to the FDA and said, ban D2 so we can sell it ourselves. Let the plebs use the D3 because it doesn't have any effect. And now subsequent studies show that D3 is actually less dangerous than the D2. Um, I think the main danger that I've seen with D2 is that uh, it actually tends to cause hypercalcemia at about the same rate as calcitriol, unlike the D3, the calciferol, which tends to be more benign. They got to really abuse it to cause the hypercalcemia. The D2, those 50,000 units that the doctor usually prescribes weekly, taken as one pill, um, is a very high incidence of hypercalcemia, maybe like it's like 10 or 12 percent, which is pretty high, um, uh, enough to be considered in my book. Is like, uh, I don't want to take 10 percent chance. Hypoglycemia is nothing to laugh at. Like I said, most cancer patients with metastases die from hypercalcemia, not from the tumor and not even from the metastases. It's the, the, the secondary effects like hypercalcemia or massive serotonin increase, which causes like a massive blood clot, and that's who, that's what usually does them in. Third thing is cachexia. Very, very rarely you're gonna have a case where tumor is pressing against some kind of a really crucial uh, area or organ like the brain or like uh, or like some some uh, major artery or things like that. But usually in cases like that, they, they tend to take it out. Um, and if it recurs, it doesn't doesn't recur in the same area. So most cancer patients die from the hypercalcemia. What one more question too? Like the it might be making me sound like a conspiracy theorist, but the fortification. Uh, here, I know where I moved from California, the horizon milk was everywhere that, that red horizon milk. And I actually had people messaging me every day saying, I can't find dairy. That's not fortified. And usually it's algae oil, which I used to sell. Unfortunately, Schizochytrium species, microalgae DHA, or it's D3 or both. Um, and I don't know if like force feeding the public, was ever good. Like they started doing iron filings after world war two and that didn't turn out too well for us. (laughs) So I'm just like questioning, like if they're force feeding it to us, what does that tell you? (laughs) You I I think that's completely reasonable. And I'd always prefer milk without the added vitamins. In fact, somebody just forwarded, uh, uh, they chained me on a, um, an email and I don't know how they got it, but they actually took a photo of the vitamin a, and the D that was added to milk, like they must work in a manufacturing plant or something. And one of the encapsulations uh, excipients was polyethylene glycol. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the part of the adjuvant for these new M- mRNA vaccines. It's so that, a non-carcinogen. Yeah, yeah, it is extremely toxic, you know, and that's what probably what's killing people, anaphylactic sh- shock and stuff. And so, so again, the, the, I'm right with you on that one. I don't know. I don't know the history behind that, but I'd always prefer my milk not to contain those things. They also have silica because like they tell you like the label only has to actually list if they, if the vendor added it, added it themselves. Now, if they're using an ingredient 
like as a as a you know as part of the mixture and that ingredient itself is a composite ingredient like those vitamin mixtures and they have something else like the polyethylene glycol or silica or talc or titanium dioxide the vendor the final manufacturing vendor is not required to list it on the label unless it's present in like the quantities that trigger the reporting which is impossible because it's usually one gram right so you know uh, if you're adding vitamin a and d you're adding pretty tiny amounts but enough of like a silica or talc or titanium dioxide or any of these things to actually trigger a reaction. So most of the labels of something that's fortified are not even accurate by design. You just don't know what each one of these ingredients that went in there, what that ingredient itself is uh, consists of. So what would your recommendation be to somebody? Because obviously in the States, if it's a lower fat milk, everything is fortified. Um, and, but then there's the premise of obviously if you drink a lot of milk, you don't want to have a high fat intake from the whole fat milk. So what would your suggestion be for people that would like to avoid the additives, but yet not consume milk with so much fat? There are, uh, in my local Whole Foods, there are two brands that are low fat and non-fortified. There's come from some kind of a trickling springs creamery or something like that. Um, and they have a full fat variety, they have a 2% variety, and they have a fat-free variety. And as far as I could see, um, I've actually emailed the Trickling Springs Creamery. They haven't responded. I suspect they're a small outfit somewhere here in Pennsylvania, close to where I live. Uh, I'm in D.C., but they're not far. Um, and uh, they, I explicitly, because I looked at the, they're actually their whole uh, uh, milk variety is fortified, but the, the, the same thing for the 2% and the 0% didn't list any fortifications. So, I emailed them. They haven't responded yet, but I don't see a reason why, because if they're listing it on the label of one of their varieties, why would it not list it on the others? Um, especially if usually in a, like in the lower fat varieties, they actually put more because it absorbs less. So you, you're going to have proportionally, I think you're going to have like three or four times the amount of vitamin A and D in a fat-free version of the milk from the same vendor than you would have in the full fat one because they know that the lack of fat inhibits the absorption of these fat-soluble vitamins, so they end up putting more to compensate for the lower absorption. So if they have more of these, but uh, what I'm saying is that if they didn't list it on the label, chances are they did not purposefully fortify those specific brands. I think there still are. If you go to like a relatively large store, like a local uh, farm brand, uh, there chances are that it's not fortified. And I'm not sure if it's like a... I don't think there's a federal law for I thought it was a law that they had to be fortified if they were low-fat... I think it's the B vitamins uh, that, that, that have a federal law. I'm not sure about the A and D. It may be. It may be. Don't quote me on that. My suggestion would be emailing uh, Matt Blackburn at gmail.com and having him <laughs> send you goat milk <laughs> for a reasonable price. That would be, his fat. Yeah. <laughs> Carrier pigeon overnight. Yeah. <laughs> it does, it does help to not have your own goat. <laughs> I, I, I think Ray has said this, but uh, again, I think I have the most sensitive stomach in the world. It, but even milks that have those, oftentimes they won't irritate me. And so I don't know. I think Ray's uh, hypothesis was the milk was so protective that it, it, was, it didn't cause yeah. any noticeable harm. I mean, he drinks, I think, lucerin, like yeah. 1%, which is not even organic milk. And so, I mean, it, I think you got to find your way. And I think you got to test milk and see how it works for you. I think that's a good assumption. And if you're sensitive yeah. to the additives and if that's a concern, then you're going to be on whole milk and you'll have to kind of wiggle around that or get a goat. 
like Matt. This speaks to how terrible the food supply is in general. Yeah. And this is a bit this is a bit left field of this, but just because you know, like I get a lot of women coming to our program and like you know, people get so stressed out. I think about I've got to buy everything organic and it's gotta be like the highest I mean, obviously better quality is better, but like would you agree it's about like doing the best that your budget can afford? You know, some people just can't afford to buy I mean, personally we don't really we actually don't eat any organic food. We just buy lo- our local milk. Like we support the local farmers, so Mulaney Dairy or there's an A2 milk that I like and Craig's like way more sensitive to me. So there's like one fucking milk that he can drink. <laughs> and then, you know, we just buy normal – actually, I lie. We buy organic carrots, but we peel them, you know, and we buy – we've got this great butcher that does all – I think Australia, we're really lucky. So we've got beautiful grass-fed Cape Grim meat. So we buy pasture-raised eggs, but nothing's organic. Like, I don't know, what, what, what are your thoughts on that? Um, 100%. Of the uh, of the milk, you can actually get the non-homogenized variety, mm. and even the full fat, the fat accumulates at the top, so you can remove it. So mm. you, you can get that, and you're getting basically uh, relatively almost fat-free milk. And if you boil it, then all of all of the fat will get to the top, and you can get yourself basically skim milk. Uh, and the non-homogenized varieties, I think they don't have the fortifications because yeah. they know it accumulates in the fat, so there's no point. Mm. Yeah, and and that's for us in the states. I mean, and I recommend that is using Strauss milk. Strauss is a non-homogenized, and there are other varieties, but that their their fat does accumulate at the top. And I always suggest just remove some of that fat, and you won't have to worry about it. So you think it's just do that? Because I remember actually when I worked with Dodie for for like twelve months, and she would even recommend some people did well on like UHT milk. Like Ray would say to her, if they're really sensitive, get them to get the UHT, which is the super like ultra pasteurized. Yeah. 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 Cause it's still like calcium. I know and a handful of people that do well on that, but don't do well on other, other brands. So really it's just about testing, right. And finding what best works for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Obviously it would be awesome if we all had like cows, we could just go, you know, suck the milk straight out of the teat like Matt. Well, I don't know if he does that, but you know, like oh. I always see like the strong sisters he gets on their farm. Sometimes, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, oh, how amazing would it be to have like cows where you could have amazing, beautiful, fresh milk and raw everything? But to buy raw milk here, it's like fourteen bucks for two liters, which is just—it's too expensive for most. Pe- like you think if you've got a family, yeah. you know, you're trying to feed a family, and most people have moderate incomes. You know, I guess it's just they've got to do the best that they can. Why is it so expensive to milk? Like, is it like a... What's the raw milk? It's illegal. It's illegal. So they sell it as Cleopatra's bath milk, not for human consumption. Like they sell it in the organic stores and it's called, yeah, Cleopatra's bath milk. It's yum. It is yum, but expensive, you know. Okay. Do you guys eat eat kangaroo or it's against the law? Yeah, I went through this stage when back in the days when I was an idiot with my dieting and I used to just eat kangaroo all the time because it was lean. It's super lean, but it's pretty like, it's really gamey. It's a, I think it's a bit of an acquire. I just ate it. Nah, it tastes, I don't know. I can't even describe it, but I ate it too much. Like I ate it for week, months and months and then I, now I just can't eat it anymore. I love kangaroo. I went to an Australian restaurant here once and I mean, you loved it, it tastes really, oh yes, it, it, it tastes like deer meat to me. Yeah, it's, um, it's really gamey, hey? Yeah, but yeah. I like that. I mean, it's like yeah. to me, it's like it's like wild animal, you know. So I, I like I like the, that taste. My wife didn't like it. My children didn't. 
but there was another Australian guy there who looked like he's playing Australian football or something. He was devouring, I don't know, he was eating the tail or something. Oh, <laughs> wow. Like a pretty long, yeah, I don't know what he was chewing on, but it was like a massive amount of meat and he just went through it. Must have been at least four pounds of meat. And it would make sense for us just to eat kangaroo because, you know, obviously it's native to Australia mm -hmm. and I think it's the cut too. Like my mistake was buying it from Woolworths in this bloody marinade, which was just feral. And But I think if you get the nice, um, you know, the equivalent to like the eye fillet of the cow, it's actually really tender and yummy. So, yeah, maybe I'll have to give it a go again, Georgie. Georgie oh, liking... Georgie enjoying uh, kangaroo meat is the most revelatory piece of information on this podcast, I feel like. With barbecue sauce. With barbecue sauce. It's yummy. It's amazing. Yeah, Got to have the barbecue sauce in Australia, don't you? Yeah. That's what you're going to get from this podcast. I think <laughs> Eat kangaroo. Number, kangaroo. <laughs> All right. Do we, do we want to have a, like, a little closing argument, Matt? Do you want to just kind of just say, hey, your piece, what your thoughts are? Sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I would just say topical is a lot safer than oral. If you are going to supplement would be my recommendation. And um, I'm sure Georgie's is awesome quality. Um, and yeah, just look at both sides and make up your own, you know, opinion. And there are people on both sides that have um, had issues with supplementing D3, whether low dose or high dose or somewhere in the middle. And there are people that have had great results with it. And so I know there's a lot more to health than, you know, just the physical. So there, maybe there's emotional belief or some psychological component to how it works in your system. Um, but I would just say proceed with caution, look at both sides and then make up your own mind. Good. Awesome. And Danny or Georgia, you want to throw some, some bits in there? Um, Go ahead, I think it's actually it's unfortunate that that studies can't even agree on something as basic as whether supplementing the precursor would lower or increase PTH. Um, to me, that's that's actually a, a bummer. You know, if if uh, I would like to read more on that, I mean, I'm going to go and do some uh, some checking myself because if the medical community cannot even agree on that, then clearly we cannot expect to have a, a coherent. Not not that we can have an argument, but that it explains why there are so many discrepancies in opinions because this is relies at the heart of whether to supplement or not vitamin D. Another thing that we just discovered, Matt just referenced a study which said vitamin, uh, the, the, the cholecalciferol is an antagonist at, at VDR, right? Uh, and I'm checking three, three of the largest chemical vendors in the world and they're selling it as an agonist, in other words, as activator. Um, I mean, again, if most of the claims of the anti-vitamin anti D crowd are related to the vitamin D receptor, and we cannot have like a reliable arbiter of whether it's an activator or an antagonist, then I don't, I th I don't think it's a surprise that we, we're, we're having these, these uh, disagreements and that we can reach um, a unified conclusion. But I think the, the good news that, it, that is I got myself out of this is that um, when you test vitamin D, you should not allow your doctor to run the show because he or she will do probably what's the least difficult and the most expensive, um, um, and which means that you need to ask for these additional tests because the calcium homeostasis system, um, it involves at the very least the D3, the 25-hydroxy and the calcitriol, the 125-hydroxy, parathyroid hormone, uh, serum calcium. Um, whether it's total serum calcium or ionized, I don't think it matters. I, I think there's some studies saying that the total serum calcium is more important. 
um, also the aldosterone, um, and potentially the other minerals as well, because magnesium interplays with calcium, right? Um, sodium as well. There's some studies on that. So basically, you should be getting the full metabolic panel um, if your doctor is pushing just to test for vitamin D. You should be asking for the additional vitamin D forms. You should be asking for the minerals and the, the full metabolic panel uh, to get a clear picture because clearly these things affect each other, right? And only by seeing as many pieces of the puzzle as possible, you can form an opinion whether you're into the category of, oops, I have too much vitamin D, right? Which will probably be a case if your calcitriol is high and your PTH is low, right? But you have to test all of these things in order to know where you stand because just checking 25-hydroxy, which is the standard test, um, I don't think by itself it, it shows much. Oh, cholesterol there as well, because as a precursor, it's also important. Uh, and the cholesterol level largely, cholesterol and vitamin and the 25-hydroxy will largely determine, will be a good surrogate of what your overall metabolic rate is, which should tell you where your, life, where your systemic health is as well. Yeah, my piece... Go oh, I'm sorry, Dane, real quick though, uh, Georgie, just because so many people have issues with certain labs and getting them done and, and they have to hammer their doctors and they can't get them. Can you just give a recommendation on maybe like the minimal that you can get a, a basic understanding of what their vitamin D status is? Well, there is the four things, uh, serum, calcium, PTH, calcitriol, which is the active one and the storage form. At the very least, you got to get that. Uh, because because they all, all four of them affect each other, and and without measuring all four of them, it doesn't you don't you don't get a complete picture because calcium calcium affects both the levels of PTH and the synthesis across the different steps from precursor to the final vitamin D right. Then the calcitriol the active form affects both the calcium levels and the PTH, and we have some evidence which Danny and I think is sufficiently strong that the precursors affect all of the other steps as well. So those four things. So to get a, a, a minimal idea of where you stand on vitamin D, uh, you need to check the calcium, the parathyroid, parathyroid hormone, and as many different isomers of vitamin D as your doctor's office offers. Uh, most certainly not only uh, the storage form, because that's what they're going to go for. I think it's also the most expensive to test. At least my doctor, when I tested my the, the calcitriol, uh, or maybe my insurance covers them differently, but the calcitriol uh, cost $40, but the 25-hydroxy was 90. And that may be a reason why the doctors go, another reason why the doctors go for that. It's the most expensive and the most standard. So that's what they're going to go for. But yeah, uh, and most doctors wouldn't fight you very hard for the calcitriol. They may not know about it, which to me is more concerning than fighting me about it. Uh, but if you say calcitriol, if the doctor gives you like a strange look, you say, I want to know the active vitamin, the levels of my active vitamin D as well. And then they, if they know what they're doing, they should know what you're talking about. Awesome. Okay. Danny. Yeah. Um, so for, number one, trust no one. <laughs> then <laughs> I, I would say measure your vitamin D, measure your prolactin, measure parathyroid hormone, measure your aldosterone. If your vitamin D level is under 40 nanograms per milliliter, I would say I would have a lot of confidence in supplementing vitamin D, improving your, the person's overall quality of life. For myself, I have a sensitive stomach. I put it on my skin. The only product I have tons of experience with and feel confident in is the Carlson vitamin D3 liquid. And that, that would be my piece on the subject. Yeah. Awesome. And I have no ties to that company, by the way. <laughs> 
<laughs> so yeah. And I would I would just add that I, I think before anyone supplements anything, I think it's really good to like check your diet and check your stress because those are all huge components and how your health is uh, is established. And so you know if everything else is crap and you're just throwing a bunch of supplements at yourself, it's probably not the right way to go. So you know, check everything else first. And then at that point in time, you get some labs and then that looks like a good answer. Then I, I would say, Hey, give it a go. Awesome. And finally, I just want to give everyone a plug and tell ev- the people who are listening, you know, where you can find these people and what they do and what they sell. So we'll start, I'm just going to go in order of the screen. Um, Kate, the amazing Kate Deering, how to heal your metabolism. If you haven't read the book, it's really awesome. And I think, for the, you know, mere mortals, it's just a bit easier to understand. <laughs> and it's a really good summary. So we recommend everyone in our program reads it. We sell it. I'll actually put a discount code um, in the show notes. So you can either buy it from our website. You can also get it on Audible now, which is awesome. And I think she's bringing it out in French, aren't you, Kate? Yeah, the French is, uh, It's we just finished it. And it should, well, we just finished the translation. It's now going back to the uh, the editor publisher to get it formatted so i'm mm. hoping like a month or n- month or two should be out in french yay and then uh next matt so matt has um mito life amazing supplements he's got and i'll probably miss some vitamin e vitamin k which we use his nad power the niacinamide which is amazing i've actually got some of his um dissolve it on the way because i think anyone who follows me will know that i got the boobs out taken out so I'm going to take them and see how it goes in just reducing more of that scar tissue, which will be um, awesome. What else do you have, Matt? Uh, Sheila Jeet. That's it. I've got that coming show. too. I'm, co- I'm, I've got, I'm trying that too. I've tried. I think they're the only two I haven't tried maybe. Yeah. Anti- That's lipo- a powerful one. Anti-lipoposcine supplement. Didn't you have that? Or- oh, yeah. The endotoxin one. What's that one? Well, the spore-based probiotic, uh, that's just three, three strains and that one, you know, is situational, but I feel, feel great on that just to lower endotoxin, mm. some research on that. And I, yeah, I think that's all of avid dairy absorb, which is a lactase enzyme, which is helpful for people that are reintroducing dairy into their diet mm. to help digest that. Yeah, so Matt's got his awesome Mito Life, and if you use discount code Kitty15, you can get 15% off. Georgie has the most incredible range of supplements too. We won't go through all of them because, <laughs> well, you could, Georgie, but it's like there's two websites now, isn't there? Uh, it's one website, but the credit card processing company has this stupid requirement, which is uh-huh. easily cir- circumventable, yeah. and I don't even know why they have it. They're saying like, if, if the lab chemicals should be sold on a separate page, mm. uh, a separate page from the from the non-lab chemical, like what's the point? They can add product from each page to the same shopping cart. And the credit card is like, Shh, don't, don't encourage it. Don't enc-. I'm like, that's stupid. Of course, that's what they're going to do. Uh, it's ridiculous. Craig and I have got heaps of Georgie supplements too. And one which I've actually been, which some women might like this is, because we were talking about Botox and how, like, obviously Kate and I did the pot. We've both done Botox, not anymore, you know, all a la natural. But still, you know, get the lines, obviously, because 40 and Kate's 40. Older. Older, yeah. <laughs> and Georgie's like, get get the get the cordon on and the, uh, anyway, I've been getting the cordon on the, the Progest D and the DHEA and I've been, I wanted to update you. I thought I'd just do it now. Craig's been doing it too. So, like, six drops every night around my eyes and just where the lines where the lines are and it's definitely improved them georgie like even craig is like oh just i mean i've got pretty good skin but it's i really feel like it's even better now so if anyone wants to try that get georgie's 
the it's caught on the it's the one in the coconut in the it's in the oil in the vitamin E with, yeah. the, with the saturated fat. So that's yeah, it. This, yeah, this usage. I mean, I didn't in, initially intended for such use, but there's this older study. I think it was done in the fifties at a retirement home in the states, mm. and they basically got both men and women. And they tested uh, the, average, the average age in that retirement home was like 72. And mm. they tested different steroids, their effects on, the, on reversing the aging of the skin. So mm. the most effective one was testosterone, both for men and women. But progesterone was, was a very close second. And pregnenolone was a very close third. Now, importantly, DHEA in women metabolizes mostly into testosterone. So the combination mm. of progesterone plus the DHEA should mimic more or less the testosterone and progesterone effects of what uh, that study saw. And they were remarkable. I mean, they have some pictures in there where clearly a person at the age of 72 um, is not going to be, you know, perfectly shiny, uh, you know, non-wrinkly skin. Um, and they had a, they basically kind of had the same experience that Ray had by taking oral DHEA in his fifties. Uh, uh, he said that he started looking, he lost his middle age appearance uh, and he grew, I think, like he said, an inch or something. I'm not making any of those claims, but the it, it, this combination in women should be able to mimic the effects of that older study. And there are some studies now in males as well, mostly in animals, that show that DHEA and progesterone also have anti-aging effect, uh, effects on the skin in the males. Now, for the uh, metrosexual males out there that uh, worry about these things, uh, they can, uh, they, they have an option now too. Well, I can confirm it's working. It's working. Like it's, Craig's, not, he's like, oh, geez, kid, your skin's looking really good. Like your lines are looking less. I'm like, yes. Good work, good. Georgie. Um, and amazing Danny Roddy, who has a Patreon account that you can, can and you also do consults. So you still do consults, Danny? Yeah, but I'd like to plug the Ancient Aliens History Channel documentary. <laughs> that would be my the ultimate, I think, that you would support me. So none of that Patreon stuff. Just watch that documentary. That would mean the world to me. So, well, Tsukalos is the name yeah. of the <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, put, I'll put links to everyone's site. And finally, I'm just going to give myself an Emma a plug for Saturay, which we've got the food supplements. And we're also just about to release our skincare, which is so exciting. So fully saturated skincare. Been like a year and a half in the making. I'll put the links for everyone down in the show notes. And I just really appreciate you guys. And that was just so awesome. And so, like, no one, no anger. There was not one angry person. I think because we all eat sugar. Did you say? <laughs> or, or we're at the age where we understand that, you know, it's really not worth hurting each other uh, with words over concepts. Um, we're here to learn, right? Um, and I think Ray experimented with this with this same approach in, in Blake College. So when, when he got with his students, the goal wasn't to argue and convince one side that the other side is right or that somebody's wrong, it was to, by continuously asking questions, enriching your own existence. I mean, at least that's why I'm here, uh, not to convince people they should really gobble up on vitamin D. Uh, if anything, it was a revelation to me that that medicine for, for the one millionth time, you can have like five different opinions amongst two doctors, right? And something as fundamental as whether supplementing vitamin D3 will actually lower or increase PTH or activate or block the VDR, which are the basis of all theory current, currently published about vitamin D, even that apparently you cannot have, you cannot find consensus on. Hmm. Well, just every, if you're listening to this, follow all of these amazing people. Um, they're just really good humans. 
and they just genuinely want to help um, everyone and they're always experimenting and learning and every time we speak to them we always learn uh, new things it's it's amazing so just yeah thanks again guys this was like two hours wow thanks for giving up your time now it's time to go eat my lunch <laughs> I'm out of chamomile tea, so I need to replenish. <laughs> Good work. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thank, Thank you. you, guys. Bye. 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 Take care. Bye.